You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. You're now tuned into the Pod Awful channel. Pod Awful. Bi-quarterly women's social club. Days and convicted. Pool party radio. Showcase. The devil's advocate. The projection booth. Awful flips. Pod Yeah. I need three boxes of a dozen Trojans, one regular, one ripped, and one lubricated. Mm-hmm. A sanitary sponge, one KY jelly, one Caramex contraceptive cream, and an herbal douche. Oh, and can you fill this prescription for low overall 21? You don't take any chances, do you? Working Girls, the highly acclaimed new feature film by Lizzie Borden from Miramax Films. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is Mr. Rob St. Mary. Sex work is work. Also joining us this week is Ms. Grace Smith. Good evening. This week we are looking at the 1986 film Working Girls. This is in no way to be mistaken for the 1988 film Working Girl, singular, with Melanie Griffith. This is the low-budget film from director Lizzie Borden with a group of women working a day at a New York City brothel. The film stars Louise Smith as Molly. We follow her through a day in the life as she interacts with her fellow sex workers and a group of clients on the job. So, Rob, when did you first see Working Girls and what were your thoughts? Well, the first time I saw it was probably two months ago, and I had knew Lizzie Borden as a name, and her name comes up quite often in my reading in my early years when I got interested in film because a lot of her stuff was done low budget and was not only just low budget film, but was also held up as an exemplar, especially in the 80s of feminist film, and I hadn't gotten around to see any of her stuff, and uh, it was great to get a chance to uh, check this out, and I was was really impressed with it in terms of the acting and the quality of the film and there's some framing stuff in here that i really liked in terms of camera use but um i was going to ask some questions about that later so i'll save that all right cool how about you grace when did you first see it i first watched it a few weeks ago um i wasn't familiar with the movie nor any of the actors in it um so i was quite surprised by it yeah i have to say i'm not very familiar with many of the actors or actresses that are in it other than the guy that plays bob one of the first clients who's uh, played by boomer tibbs he seems to have shown up in a lot of other things he's got a very interesting look at first i thought he was lee valensky from the american astronaut but it's another kind of odd-looking bald guy i would love to see the short film that he's in called that fucking elevator but i have yet to track that down so i saw this one gosh probably late 80s maybe and it really stuck with me it's one of those films where 
I would see it in other films. I would kind of be watching another film and say, wow, this one really reminds me of Working Girls. I don't know why I saw it so early in its run. Um, I mean, it was probably fairly fresh on video. Maybe uh, I confuse it for Working Girl. I don't know. (laughs) But uh, definitely enjoyed it. And I really like the way that it is presented, this kind of day in the life and just kind of following these women as they, uh, especially Molly, our main character, as she kind of goes through her day. And just, I've always been very fascinated. Well, I'm always fascinated just by people that are doing their job. And, you know, no matter what it is, even if I'm like going to like the oil change place and I'm watching the guy who knows how to do the oil change really well, I'm always fascinated to hear about other people's ways of making a living. And this one, of course, was very fascinating to me because it's New York City. It's a brothel. I had no idea about any of this stuff, especially when I'm just a teenager watching this the first time. But I have to say it's held up after I've I think I've watched it now probably four or five times. And each time it just kind of grows on me a little bit more. It has almost sort of a like a stage play kind of feel to it. And when I and I don't mean that in a bad way in terms of the film. I mean it's not it's not locked down in that way with a camera, although there are some shots that are like that. But it really does have this feel that all of these people may have worked this out uh, before the filming, and meaning that they may have just been in a room rehearsing with each other. And you get a real sense of various levels within uh, the world they've constructed. I mean, there's obviously those who are working there, there's the woman who runs the place, and then there are the the Johns who come there. And there's just sort of how they change and how they interact with those different levels and those different structures within this one place. Yeah, I would totally agree with what you just said. Um, it was quite interesting. I've never seen the inside of a brothel before so to see that i was like wow really they like allow clients to see one another and things of that sort so it was it was quite interesting to see the take on that aspect as well yeah i was really surprised i I think i know what moment you're talking about especially towards the end when the madam is there and her boyfriend slash client and another client are there and i'm just like okay, I don't know how comfortable I would be as one client seeing another client and just kind of this socializing aspect to it. It's like, I just kind of want to come in, pick the girl, and then go up to the bedroom, and I don't really want to sit in the living room and chat kind of thing. At least that would I, I would think that that's how it would be for me, because it felt a little like... I like the, the idea that they have as far as not sharing you know client details and stuff, but... Yeah, that's that's right out the door when it comes to this. I agree with you, Rob. It does feel very much of a stage at times. For me, this film really feels like it's two major parts. There's the beginning of it when we have Molly, Gina, and Dawn all in the room talking together and interacting with their clients. And they talk a lot about the other ladies that work there, especially about their boss. That whole first section until Molly leaves and goes in uh, to the drugstore, that feels very much like it might have been one piece, one of a whole. And then the other part feels uh, has a, a very different feel to it, probably because Dawn and uh, Gina aren't really there anymore. And we have uh, another set of women that she's interacting with. It feels a little different to me. 
one thing that I really liked in here was, um, like I said, the sort of use of framing at times I thought was kind of interesting. But I was trying to figure out is, is that the actual framing or am I looking at sort of a pan scan video version? And what I mean by that is, is there's certain scenes where uh, you'll see like four of them in the room, but it'll be a framing of the two on the right side who would be the two girls who are working there. And then on the other side of the couch or whatever, the other side of the room would be the madam and sort of they cut between the two. And sort of this idea of framing in that way, instead of having it be one wide shot where everybody's in the shot. And I like the idea that this happens like several times in this version that I saw. But I can't, like I said, I can't quite figure out if that's how it was framed specifically or if that's because of pan and scan video that I might be looking at. I don't know which. But if it is the actual framing, it is, I thought, quite good because she was using the frame to kind of cut people off and put them in their own little area, even though they're all in the same room. So basically saying it's this group versus this group over here and just sort of how the staging was done. Well, I would think that that would make sense too, because the madam is really the antagonist in this piece. I mean, it's not like I kept thinking, like I said, I've seen this thing four or five times now. And every time I see it, I think something awful is going to happen. Like we have uh, throughout the film, They're working at this brothel, and so they get the calls from the different clients that want to come up and see them or set up appointments, that kind of stuff. We keep getting these hang-up calls, and I and I know that that's probably the case in real life. They probably, you know, for every three appointments that they get, they get six hangups or something like that. But I was worried throughout the entire film that something bad was going to happen, that somebody was going to show up and be like, you know, you bitches, why don't you answer my calls and blah, blah, blah. Or like there's the one guy who makes it past the doorman and they don't know that he's, he's there. He just kind of buzzes himself in kind of thing. And it's like, I'm like, Oh my God, this is it. This is when the, the bad stuff happens. But luckily that never is the case, but I just, I don't know what it is. I guess I'm just used to women in peril kind of thing. I just kept thinking that that was going to happen because really to go back to your point, Rob, the the enemy in the film, the antagonist of the film, really is the madam. There is no male antagonist that's going to come in and terrorize the women. It's a woman against woman kind of thing where it's the madam not understanding the uh, the people that are working for her, wanting to put on this different presentation for the outside world wanting the girls to the women to fall in line with you know the 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 kind of presentation she wants to present to the men and to the outside world so it's kind of interesting that she really is the enemy and they're kind of battling her throughout the entire film even when she's not there they're constantly like hey mark me down for half an hour oh you know he's going to give me extra money but don't put that on the books so it's like the entire time is like this whole idea of yeah, and it's the same way with every single job is how do you fuck over your boss and get away with that? And that's, that's such a, a universal that I could really kind of feel no matter what employment these people are doing. I was right there just like, yeah, stick it to the man. You know, even when it's, uh, you know, the, all this kind of shadow economy kind of stuff, you still got to make your money however you can. 
Right. And I'm with you um, when you said that um, you were waiting for, you know, something um, dramatic or something bad to happen. I, I think the girl's name was April, the girl that came back, uh, the dark haired lady, older lady, um, you know, and she was dealing. I, I, I got the assumption some sort of drugs. I didn't understand what it was. But, you know, like you mentioned, the, the gentleman getting up, you know, past the doorman, you know, just standing there knocking on the door and things of that sort. But it was it was interesting to see that the other shoe didn't fall, um, drop off, so to speak. I think, too, I was used to, and I know we'll talk a little bit more about this in a, a few minutes here, is I'm more used to a film like a... Um, uh, Broken Mirrors, which had predated this film by a couple of years, and I had actually seen it in a film class in like 94, 93, something like that. And it feels very similar to half of Working Girls. It, it has this whole day-in-the-life kind of thing going on at this brothel, and you get to see the interactions of all these women working together. But then there's this B story of this horrible man who is kidnapping women and torturing them, and you're just waiting for that A story and B story to collide, which you know that it will. And we never get that B story, but I was actually kind of thankful for that. I was also thankful in Working Girls is that we start off with Molly, and we have her and Dawn and Gina, and it takes us until that second half of the film before we really get that foil for the audience. I mean, that is always, for me, the thing that you have is like, oh, here's the new girl. Okay, let's explain the ropes, literally sometimes. Let's explain how this business works, and we can tell them everything, but yet... This film, we don't really get that character until that midway point or a little bit later, and they don't necessarily explain everything in the world to her, which I kind of liked, and she kind of gets thrown into the deep end a little bit, kind of like the audience already has been. And we don't have that exposition just kind of being thrown at us. We just follow along with Molly, and we get to hear her and Gina and Dawn talking, and for me, it just even though the performances at time, especially uh, the lady that played Gina, sometimes she felt pretty uh, stiff in her delivery. I still liked to hear the way that they interacted. So it it worked for me to not have that foil that we had to like sit through and be like, you know, it's like the new crewman on the ship in the science fiction movie. We always have that guy. But that is the case, you know, getting back to your thing about this is a job like any other where, you know, the boss hires someone new and the boss isn't there that day to train them or it becomes your job to train them or it's partly your job. And then you've got to, like, get other people to help you, too, because you've got to do stuff. So just that whole idea that the new person there wouldn't be treated any differently than maybe the new person who's working the night shift at a McDonald's is, I think, pretty much pretty much a given. You know, work is work. The The other thing that I think that this film also does in place with the expectations is it opens, like I said, you we talk mostly about what happens inside that brothel inside of the inside of the business there but really it has bookends on the film and i don't want to get into the later bookends because i don't want to spoil it and have someone else you know watch it but to say that it deals with domesticity and the opening is molly in bed with what we're led to believe is her 
her love, her, you know, this mm-hmm. woman, and they're sleeping and they're just like huddled up and then the alarm goes off and then they're like trying to get the kid ready to go to school and make breakfast. And so, I mean, that is over the opening credits and it's not, I mean, it's like what, 10 minutes before you get to the actual brothel and figure out, oh, okay, well, this is what's happening. So there's this whole thing about just sort of domestic, everyday working life and just saying, this is just what it is. It's just everyday life. It's not some great big thing that uh, maybe people have this sort of, uh, as you were saying, Hollywood expectation of what that is like. I like that she's in this lesbian relationship and it's not played for laughs. It's not played for shock. It just is what it is. You know, we've come, this is 1986 that this movie is made and seeing it now in 2014, it's like, okay, whatever. Seeing it in 1986, I'm sure that was probably one of the biggest shocks of the film. Oh my God, she's with this woman and she's of a different race and they have this kid living there. Oh my God, they're going to turn this little girl into a lesbian. It's going to be terrible. You know, and it's like, so now I'm so glad that all these years later it's not the shocker you know it's like okay whatever it is just so just there that it is not one of these moments that you even really look twice at and i'm so glad for that now in that regard um it was definitely um ahead of its time so to speak as you said it wasn't the shocker of the movie um but it, it just was um and that was a great aspect of it And I like the way that they kind of play with race in the film, and I I think that it's probably fairly true to life. I know that they did a lot of research when it came to writing the film, that there's only the one um, really dark-skinned African-American woman, and that whole exchange between her, I want to say her name's Debbie, and then Lucy and the Madam, that whole thing where it's just like, hey, clients don't tend to like uh, dark-skinned black women, and especially the one black client that comes in, I think there's actually a couple different black guys that come in, but the one who's just like, yeah, I think I'll hit the road. I'll be back later to see if anything else is happening. Like basically get this black girl out of my sight. I don't want, you know, this is not for me. I was just like, wow, that's really, you know, it's, that's a, a, a bomb right there. And they choose to address it, which I found great. And it, and yet it wasn't like, you know, this major ordeal again, it was just like, this is how it is. This is, you know, it's, it's sad, but that's what it is. And that's what I kind of appreciate is just how matter of fact this film was. Rob, who was your favorite John? Well, you know, I was leading towards Trapper John, but never mind. Uh, <laughs> I like uh, Papa John, not so much. He's falling on me. Um, never mind. Um, I don't know. There was, there's a couple that um, it, it, it's interesting because I think they represent different things. And that's one of the things that I really like about the film is that it is giving you these different things, but it's not really heavy handed on it. They just sort of play out and then. I think when you watch it multiple times, you realize what certain scenes are for or what they're trying to do or what the Johns represent. And there's a couple of them. There's the the guy who brings her the shirt who she tries to kind of go, okay, well, if you go on a date, then this is what you should do. And she's trying to like educate him, you know, because he's obviously a little, you know, socially awkward. And then there are other ones who are, they're not engaged like how I think they should be because you're dealing with a human being. They seem much more transactional. And then there's also uh, at least two 
who are like, you know, you're so much smarter than this and I should see you, you know, you should see me outside of here and all that. But she never, see, this is the thing that's artful is she never brings up her private life at all. It's not like she's like, yeah, I'm a lesbian. They ain't going to work out. No, it's like this, this is just who she is in that moment. She does the work and that's what she's there to do. She's not there to like make friends and hang out with people who she happens to have a uh, client relationship with. Yeah, I think my least favorite of them, and this is you know very much what the movie would want me to have, I think, is the guy that they call Fagbag Jerry. And the, he comes in and he starts telling all of the hooker jokes. Did you hear about the hooker who had an appendectomy? No. Well, she wanted to make a little money on the side. <laughs> hey, did you hear about the blind hooker? Yeah, to hand it to her. <laughs> Here's the best yet. No more hooker jokes, please. Promise. Look, they have discovered a new use for used tampons. Tea bags for vampires. <laughs> so distasteful. Just so not good. Not only are his jokes not good, but he just leaves such a horrible taste in my mouth. Even more than like the Japanese guys who come in later who just are really dicky to her and stuff. I mean, just he seemed to be just so disrespectful of everyone that was working there. Not that he's not going to take advantage of the situation and pay for these ladies' time and everything, but he just – it felt to me like he thought he was above everything, and I just really did not like that guy. He made me very skeezy. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. Um, I think I tuned him out when he started in with his jokes um, because I, I'm having a hard time recalling that, but vaguely. But the ones that um, Rob had mentioned in regard to um, Molly's clients, um, the ones that it was more than just a transaction, there was some sort of connection there, um, a personal connection uh, between the two of them. Even though it was still a business transaction, it was... It wasn't like a business transaction. It was like two friends hanging out, giving advice, things of that sort. So that was really great to see. To your point, Rob, about the never bringing up the private life, I did have to laugh at the one time when um, the the client uh, wanted to do a two-girl session. And Molly was like, okay, sure, no problem. And the new girl was so freaked out by it and just like, you know, um, talking about, you know, did he think I was a lesbian and all this? And just the the distaste in her mouth when she's talking to Molly. And it's like, you know, come, you got to think maybe Molly isn't necessarily straight. But I guess you didn't think about that. So it was that part always makes me laugh a little bit. There is also like you were talking about this different strata within within. OK, there's the, the Johns, there's the, the Madam, there's the girls and then there's even divisions within the girls in that she even kind of gets into class in this film where there's like the educated it's like oh you college girl types and then you get the feeling that the dawn character is much more like just working class you know she's just like grew up working class and whatever like i might not be like well read or whatever but i'll kick your ass kind of thing so there's there's even like strata within within the girls so so like i said there's a lot going on in this film then i think maybe people would would get sort of on first viewing and i think that she really is asking a lot of a lot of different questions about not only just i think uh sex work but 
you know, professional women and sort of like where that was going. I mean, especially when you're looking at the 1980s and the whole kind of like yuppie culture, which I think that the, the madam pretty much represents with her, you know, extravagant spending. Oh, God, that scene where she comes in and is just going through all of the new things that she bought. I got this for my ski trip to Gestad with Miles. I cannot believe how expensive ski clothes are. Lucy, I didn't know you skied. Oh, well, I don't, but I do want to look terrific in the ski lodge. Mm. And I got this. Look at this. A Fendi bag for guess how much? Two fifty. Close. Three fifty. It was on sale. Isn't it divine? Yeah, it's nice, Lucy. That really disgusted me, especially when she's making money off of the people that she's showing the stuff to. It just it reminded me a lot of some of the jobs that I've worked before where it's like, oh, hey, your boss just uh, is in this article about the Young Millionaires Club. And it's like, really? My boss is a millionaire? How much money am I making a year? <laughs> Right, and where's and where's my year end bonus? <laughs> right. And 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 when she was uh with her um her sugar daddy or boyfriend or whatever you want to call him and she was like, You just bought the wife a new car, was it, or new and she was wanting a watch from him or something or another? Uh, yeah, she was a materialistic whore, so to speak. You know, the other thing I was talking about how I liked that there was nobody there really to explain stuff to is that they also, they use the lingo without taking a breath to explain what things are. There are times where they're talking about uh, one of the girls RGs. And I think I figured out that it's regular guys, not a hundred percent on that, but then, you know, even using terms like Greek and French and all this and not, taking the time to say, okay, well, Greek is this, and French is this, and Asian, and Russian, and just, like, spelling out the whole thing for the audience. It's like, it really felt like the filmmakers and the people involved had a lot more respect for the audience and wanted us to be able to either figure it out or just be able to go along with the ride. And I was definitely there for this ride. I mean, there were times... I will say, you know, I mentioned some of the clunky performances, and I will say sometimes Dawn's voice gets on my nerves. There are a couple points where I'm just like, I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to take her voice anymore. But luckily, those scenes end right about the time where uh, I'm to my breaking point. So I don't know if you guys experienced that or not, but I was just like a little on edge when she would kind of get very emotional. But it was good that she's emotional because uh, Molly and, and Gina didn't necessarily seem to have a whole lot sometimes, but Dawn seemed a little, to, the, the pen, pendulum swung the other way a little bit. Dawn, you cannot speak to a customer that way. I don't care. Uh, if you don't give him a stupid 40 bucks back, I'll pay him out of my own pocket. But I want him out Dawn, of Dawn, it's not the $40. It's your attitude. Attitude? How can I have a uh, good attitude when you've been picking on me all day? Me? Picking on you? Listen, I have pride myself. I don't let anyone abuse me. Not them. Not you. Nobody. Well, she's like one step below, like, the so-called, you know kind of Jersey girl joke that they put in movies and Saturday Night Live or whatever. Like, you're going to be like that? Oh, I don't think so. You know, kind of, you know, she's like a couple of notches below that, you know, maybe, uh, you know, a, a little more Anglo than um, Rosie Perez with, you know, screaming at uh, screaming at Mookie and uh, <laughs> do the right thing. But it was great that they brought her in as being the girl with the street smarts, though. Um, she may not have been book smart, but she definitely had the street knowledge um, to keep her wits about her, you know, to keep herself safe or whatnot and not being taken advantage of. 
she didn't seem to have any artifice, which I enjoyed too. She was just like, I'm here, I'm doing this, whatever. So a few years ago, I went to Cinekink in New York, and the uh, I think it was the premiere night film was one called Remedy, which was directed by Cheyenne Picardo, if memory serves. And I have to admit, before we even start talking about it, that a friend of mine or a friend of a friend, um, Ashley Atkinson, is in this film. So I, um, you know, no conflict of interest or whatever as we talk about this, yada yada. Remedy really reminded me of Working Girls while I was watching it, but to me, kind of like um, not as much of a Working Girls. Like it's set rather than being set in a brothel, it's set in a dungeon, New York City. Sorry, dungeon as in a place where BDSM activities take place, not a literal dungeon. But it reminded me a lot of Working Girls when I saw it. So, Rob, what did you think about Remedy when you saw it? I thought it was well done. I like the sort of uh, multi-perspective. It has this tendency to cut between various things at times. Uh, It can be a little jarring that way, but I think it's kind of interesting. I understand how it relates to this film because a lot of it does take place in the interactions between the the various people who are working there and the Johns that come through. Uh, I thought it was, I thought it was well done. Um, It, um, it probably used a few minutes cut out tighten it up a little bit but overall i thought it was well done unfortunately i didn't watch it through its entirety um i only saw halfway through the movie um i intended to go back and revisit the last half of it um what i did see it was interesting um the reason why i said it was interesting to see another aspect of sex work being showcased the bdsm scene um so that was interesting but i i, I had i had a difficult time following it though because of the whole the the main girl um, not actually being a dom, but actually being a sub and switching um, in in her workplace. So it, it was a little difficult for me to watch. So Kira Davies is the is Remedy, our title character, and I also had some issues as far as just I never really felt close to her. It felt like she was trying to figure herself out while also trying to navigate this new job. And so it felt like I couldn't necessarily empathize with her as much just because she didn't know who she was. If she was a little bit more cohesive, I guess, or or just kind of put together a little bit more, it might be easier for me to kind of empathize with her. But I was just having a hard time with that. And then when it came to some of the other women that worked at the dungeon, some of them seemed to be there and then they would drop out and then they would come back. And I'm wondering if that was kind of because of the way that the film was shot, maybe not all the actresses were available all the time, but I never really got that camaraderie or even just kind of the through lines when it comes to the other characters because you know i was i was bagging on dawn and everything and a little bit on gina from working girls but they were very fleshed out to me i kind of felt like i understood who these ladies were whereas with remedy i didn't necessarily glom on to any of the characters other than my friend Ashley was Mistress Nadine and that was mostly just because oh hey Ashley's on screen so but she also had the the good speech about the guy with the elephantitis of the balls and everything and so kind of got with that but yeah this one felt almost a little too episodic it didn't feel like it pulled through all the way that was what I got was that they were really going for kind of episodic and feeling that these episodes and various sort of flashes of 
the days would add up to something. And I, th- I think it falls a little short, but I think in terms of what it's trying to do, I think it's an interesting subject and an interesting way to go about it. I guess, too, I thought that it was going to end a lot earlier than it did. You mentioned that it feels a little long. There's the one, you know, I talked about how the bad things, you know, might happen in another film or like like Broken Mirrors or Waiting for the Bad Thing to Happen in Working Girls. In this one, we kind of do have a bad thing that happens. It's the, the one really bad scene that Remedy has with, I believe it's the actor guy. He reminded me of like Brian Williams from NBC News or something. But um that's a horrible scene that she has, and she's really shaken up by it. And there's a couple other scenes that she has that aren't necessarily very good. I would think that that would be a little bit more towards the end of the film and might have been more of a cause for her to leave the job. But instead, it doesn't necessarily, you know, it's not A plus B equals C kind of thing. Not that every film has to be that way, but for me, it felt like that scene should have been a little bit later on in the proceedings because after that, she's just so screwed up at times. And it felt inconsistent in that way, too, as far as like, okay, is she over that? Is she not? Are we good? And I know real life would be like, you're fine one moment and then you think back to something and you're not okay the next. But in movie logic, it felt like it should have been a little bit later and that that should have been like the climax, maybe the second scene or something. And then the the, the or second act and then the, the third act is kind of more her seeing what she wants and then not being able to get it. I don't know. It just didn't really uh, flow for me that well. Well, I was taken back by her first session with the dude with the Novocaine and not having any supplies and no gloves. And I I mean, how could she, you know, continue on after that whole mess, you know, trying to put condoms on her fingers to use as, you know, protection. And and I stopped watching when during the second, second session with the actor and she was switched to being a sub and. Um, I didn't see the whole how the whole session played out um, because I stopped watching it then. But um, and that's when I lost interest because, as you said earlier, she just didn't. It felt she didn't know who she was or wanted to be, um, and she was just all over the place for me. Um, I'm like, are you dominant? Are you sub? I, I understand that people switch in the scene, but. It, she she just couldn't I don't know I don't know what it was I, I can't put my finger on it but it I, I I couldn't get into it and I can understand where they're coming from as far as like before you are allowed to be a sub in the dungeon you have to know the ropes as far as being the dom pun intended which is what Sharon Mitchell told us in our interview with her when she worked at that one uh, place. On the Smoker episode, Sharon Mitchell told us all about that, how she had to learn everything in order to work at this one uh, S&M, BDSM uh, brothel in the 70s in New York. And before she could become the dominant and be, you know, all of that, she had to learn everything else. So it's interesting. Yeah, so it it made sense to me that she's going to start out one way, learn how that is, and then be able to do the other way. But you're right, Grace, the transition between when she's doing dom sessions and when she's doing sub sessions, it almost felt like she kind of fell into the sub thing, and it just didn't feel like, I don't know, felt like she was violating the rules or something. It just it didn't feel natural to me. And you're right. If I had been working in that position and that Novocaine guy was my first client, I don't think I would have made it to a second night because that scene – goes on for fucking ever and it is just so disgusting 
oh, it gave me nightmares. <laughs> I was like, no way. And she went back to work. But there was some indication that she wanted to be submissive from the get-go. Because I remember her speaking to the lady behind the desk. And they were talking about her being submissive um, and getting what she wanted. And I, I just felt that it was a little strange that it wasn't really spelled out. But it was hinted towards that she doesn't want to be dominant. She wants to be submissive. But yet she's in this dungeon full of dominatrix so yeah it was interesting uh, yeah a little mind-boggling though i mean i know there are professional subs um you know I've, I've, <laughs> i use as my uh, volume of reference nick broomfield's documentary called fetishes and we get to see um maria Beatty in there as kind of a professional submissive so i know that it exists and stuff and i was like okay you know so this one wants to be this but yeah it just didn't feel like there was I don't know. It almost felt like we don't necessarily have this position at this establishment, but maybe we can create that position for you once you go through our training. You know, it just didn't feel like it was really <laughs> thought through that well. And I think that's not only am I saying that about the position itself, but I'm also thinking that a little bit about the, the film, too. Just like in your right, Grace, to, to, to go into a dungeon and not have rubber gloves available. It's like, you know, F me sideways. Get me out of here. I, I don't need that kind of noise. Right. And it was almost as if, you know, all the girls sitting up on the couch knew who she was seeing. And when she ran upstairs, it was almost as if they sabotaged her. That's the sense that I got from it. Like, oh, what is she looking for? And I don't think anybody asked, is there something you need or can I help you or anything of that sort? They just kind of watched her, you know, frantically looking for latex gloves. Right. And I don't know if that was like razzing the new guy kind of thing, you know, looking for the pool on top of the the roof or whatever. But, yeah, that was just like, okay, I really don't want to be around that kind of atmosphere. I guess I appreciated, like, with Working Girls, where it was here, even though I'm not being paid to train you, I will still try to help you out. It felt a lot more like throwing her in the deep end than just what we had with the Working Girls scenario, where it was just like, you know, oh, yeah, you know put you in there but i mean i could be overreacting to it just because it was such a horrible experience well i mean one would believe that if you're going to work somewhere and it's a professional place they would have professional things for you it's not like they're doing this out of some dude's basement we're going to take a break and play a pair of interviews the first with director lizzie borden and the second with the actress who played dawn amanda goodwin after these brief messages Everyone wants to spice things up in the bedroom. Here's an offer you won't want to miss. Listeners of the Projection Booth Podcast can enjoy 50% off just about any one item at adamandeve.com when you use the promotion code BOOTH. You also get free shipping and three free adult DVDs. Once again, that promotional code is BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H. Visit adamandeve.com today. Christopher Media, the Weedsman Podcast. All right, man. It's time. It's time. Are we ready for the list? The list. So we all made this list earlier. We sat around. Oh, maybe, yeah. got a, maybe got a little too high well, you making know, this list. We, we did get too high because we only made half the list. <laughs> the Weedsman Podcast. Every Friday on iTunes and ChristopherMedia.net. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise. Hi, I'm Mark. 
And you know what? I'm Mike. And we're the host of the Hollywood Upside Down podcast. We are the only podcast that looks at the films of Fred Olin Ray and Jim Wynorski exclusively on a year-by-year basis. Every episode, we present the news surrounding the world of these two legendary filmmakers. And we also try to speak with the many people involved with the films we discuss. Speaking of films, we generally talk about three to four films per episode by reviewing and rating them. If you want to find out what those films are, visit our website at hollywoodupsidedown.wordpress.com. You can download our show via iTunes, Stitcher Smart Radio, by searching for Hollywood Upside Down. So if you're a fan of B-movies and you know you are, you wouldn't be listening to us. Chances are you've seen some of the films of Fred Olin Ray and Jim Wynorski. So why don't you join us from episode to episode and relive some of those favorite movie moments. The moments you'll hear on the Hollywood Upside Down podcast. Honestly, the real reason we watch these films is we love watching boobs. We sure do. Lots of large, small, flappy, flapjacky. No, Mike. No, no, no. Very well-endowed, boisterous, giant, jiggly boobs. Those two. Yes. How did little Linda Borden end up taking the name of an axe murderer and making films in New York? Well, if your name is Linda and your last name is Borden you, and you grow up in Michigan, you get called two things. Either you get called Elsie after Elsie the cow for Borden's milk, or you get called Lizzie after the axe murderer. So uh, who the hell wants to be called Elsie, right? So Lizzie is something which you like when you're growing up because your parents hate it. So that's what happened is that, you know, when you're in... Um, you're growing up and you're in high school and people start calling you Lizzie after Borden, because Borden is my last name, you like it and then it sticks to you and after a while, Linda, it becomes the name that only you're only called by the people who you don't want to turn around for. You know, like, whether it's like the principal or then later it's like government officials or the police or... Um, Whoever, I don't, if somebody says Linda, I don't turn around. I mean, it's, but Elsie, after Elsie the cow, God, that was like embarrassing. So I think because Borden and Borden's milk was like a big thing in Michigan, I really, I really, I'm, it, I was more avoiding Elsie by choosing Lizzie than choosing Lizzie. And the Lizzie, Lizzie, so, so it stuck, but I never intended to be a filmmaker. I wanted to be a painter. And so I studied, I studied painting. I actually, see, I, I don't know her name, but there was a woman who lived on, I think it was, it was Southfield or Eight Mile Road. She was a, she did pottery and she was just an all around kind of hippie artist with a long black braid down her back. And she, I, she, she made me want, I did art. I just did any kind of art. I did painting. I did sculpture. I wanted to be an artist, and then I went to um, I went to Wellesley, and which I didn't want to go to. I wanted to go to NYU, but my parents were like, "No, you're not going to the city." Although their family all came from New York, so I was really familiar with New York. My father had come to to Detroit to teach at Wayne State University in economics, and so, but their family was all from Brooklyn. So we were really New Yorkers, and so all I wanted to do was get back to New York. But Wellesley, I don't know why I went there. I hated it. I, I so I hitchhiked all the time to New York, and I I don't I don't think I was a good painter. But I I studied art history, and I started to write about art, 
And But then I got really involved with a lot of artists who were making, not necessarily film, but they were doing a lot of video and Super 8 film and experimental film. So yeah, it was film. And like Vito Acconci was doing film and John Jonas was doing video. Vito was doing Super 8 film. And then there were a lot of a lot of people like Becky Johnston and, you know, Catherine, they were all involved in this world where film was happening. And uh, Richard Serra gave me, I was kind of really involved with everyone at that point. And Richard Serra, who was kind of a mentor in a lot of ways, um, at one point he came back from Europe and he handed me like a lot of reels of sound and he basically said make a, a track for this film I'm doing which is about a steel mill in in Germany so I did I had no idea how to edit but I somehow created the soundtrack for his steel mill film and so I became an, a kind of a film editor and it was amazing I mean I just realized that editing was like writing and I loved it I just loved it so that's how my film career kind of began, although at this point I would hardly call it a career. You know, I think I'm more of a writer now, and these days I'm kind of writing more, obviously, than directing, because it, um, directing, you know, I have to direct, I think I have to direct really specifically for myself, because I tried directing for other people. I've tried doing a little bit of TV and it's like directing traffic at the level I was doing it on. You know, it's 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 really not what I wanted to be doing. I would rather be writing and spending my days like that, even if things went into the closet. You know, it's I, I maybe if I'd been able to direct at a level, at a higher level, it would have been different. But if you're doing things like silk stockings, it's, it's really pathetic. You know, it's like, oh, can't I do an NYPD Blue? No way. So I think if I'd been doing NYPD Blues, it would have been very, very different. I would have been, I might have been more of a TV director. Right now I am writing pilots and trying to trying to do things for television. But for me, that would be like writing a novel. You know, it would be it would be a, a different kind of expression. But it definitely grew out of the art world because at that point when I was in New York, the art world was everything. The art world was every kind of expression. And I, I really didn't think I was a really, I didn't think I was a good painter. And in fact, I know I wasn't a good painter. I was, and pro, a part of the problem was that I, I was so derivative. I would, I would take a little of this person and a little bit of that person. And I was also writing art criticism and, I just felt always that I was, I had the critic on my shoulder looking at me and saying, oh no, that's not good. And so when I started to make films, I didn't go to film school. But that caught up with me, and maybe that's the problem, is that after after Working Girls, my lack of film school caught up with me, because I really didn't have a clue how you write a script. You know, Working Girls kind of happened. You know, when I look at it now, I realize, okay, it did have three acts. And when I look at Born in Flames, it kind of does have pack breaks, but it was completely kind of unconscious, and I've never ever never went to a Robert McKee class, or I never really studied it, but maybe it took all these many, many, many years in between to kind of understand how to how to like craft a script. So it's my punishment for not having having really studied before, because there is a craft to it, and I don't think it's it's a I don't think it's one of those things which 
a lot of people out here seem to think it is, which is like on page 8, something has to happen, or page 30, something has to happen. Because uh, I, I really think that there's such a, a paucity of ideas out here. You know, it's like if I see one more film, one more coming-of-age movie, I'm going to go crazy, you know. it's And now, you know, film is dying to a certain degree. You know, and everything is like huge movies or little independent films. You know, it's... And everybody, like I said, everybody can make a film. You know, so right now it's like you have to really have something to say. And what I'm finding fascinating are these really long, with 13 episode things like House of Cards or um, Orange is the New Black. I kind of like the new novel, you know, that people are putting out. So all of this time where I kind of disappeared into into the shadows has been practicing, you know, so I think I do have to believe that there's another, there's light at the other end, you know, which is that hopefully I've learned a skill or I'm learning the skill of, of writing because so much of, so much of like working girls was kind of crafting something around, around real people, you know, people I did observed you know, real people, you know, and I am really, I will be eternally grateful to um, one of the women who was in Working Girls. She was in the day, one of the day girls who was a real working girl. And she really helped me a lot. And she actually stood in for an actress who fell out at the last minute. And uh, she, she helped with, you know, she helped make it authentic, you know, just, you know, this, this would happen and that wouldn't happen. So, you know, I felt, you know, I, I feel so much, so often like an observer, you know, somebody, but at the same time, I, I like to be able to not have to stick to what's observed. And that's why I think I, I'm not, I would not be cut out to be a documentary filmmaker, although obviously documentary filmmakers are also, are also kind of messing with reality all the time, you know, which is, you know, I think from er- Errol Morris on, people realize that, you know. I don't feel that I belong in California, and I don't know why I'm here, actually, but I think the New York that generated Working Girls or the possibility to do a film like Working Girls no longer exists. I mean, I think it's moved to other parts of the city, like maybe Brooklyn, but that's moving too. Definitely not Queens. It's just uh, the kind of the kind of filmmaking that happened that Working Girls grew out of um, is no longer there. Erwin Young at DoArt had a camera, a Super 16 camera, that several filmmakers used to make their movies. So I made Working Girls and Spike Lee made She's Gotta Have It. And there were a few other filmmakers who used that camera, and then it got stolen. But recently, um, maybe it was last year, I got a call saying from DoArt saying, well, you owe like $126,000 for storage. And I'm like, what for us? And they said, well, we've been storing your elements from working for working girls for the last, God, how long has it been? Like 1986 to now. Yeah. And I said, well, why didn't you call me? They said, well, we couldn't find you. And I'm like, wait a second, you couldn't find me? Uh, I'm in the phone book. I mean, I've been in the same place out here for the last, what, 20 years. So they finally said, okay, we're not going to charge you for the storage fees. We'll just charge you for sending the elements to you as if I needed them, you know, but they're not doing film anymore. Film is gone. No more film. You know, and it's like the same thing in theaters. Now they're just going to show digital and digitally, and it's, wow, that's so interesting. You know, it's 
everywhere. But it's I don't even know that I could find a 35 print anywhere. I don't know what uh, Miramax, the old Miramax, did with them. You know, they're probably sitting in, you know, a, in a Canadian warehouse somewhere or thrown away, melted somewhere. Not, it's just such an, such an odd experience. You know, it's funny because um, it's, that's both happened in one day. Um, earlier today, I got a call from the AFI. Uh, they're doing like an entry in this in their catalog about Born in Flames. And they called and they said, well, what was the budget for Born in Flames? And we can only use, they can only use what the information from the time that the film was made. They can't use information I give them now. And they said, we need something in print about what the budget was. And I said, but there was no budget. I said, I approached that with no budget. It just grew on the, on the Steam Deck. It just evolved. And the budget probably ended up being maybe, I don't know, I was guessing $40,000 by the end of the day. And I had a few little grants here and there and, and all that. So there was no budget. And I don't really know how much it ended up costing, but it wasn't a documentary. It wasn't any of that. But it was an inductive film in that it evolved from, it grew and, you know, I ended up shooting some things and throwing them out and writing a scene based on what I threw out and reshooting that. So I wanted to do something that was very controlled. And and so I wrote a script and I thought, okay, I'll set it all in one day. And it all grew out of one shot that was in Born in Flames. There was a sequence of women doing things uh, with a montage of women women's work. One of the uh, shots was a woman putting a condom on an erect penis. Women's work. So I, that was what grew out that that the film of Working Girls grew out of that. But it was also because it, I'm, I'm sure you've read this somewhere uh, that uh, during that time in in New York, a lot of women, a lot of artists were working in the sex industries. There was performance art going on at the time with a lot of nudity. Uh, Joan Jonas, people like that were doing it in their art, but also women like Annie Sprinkle were doing really kind of raunchy performance art from the sex industries and bringing that into the art world. So it seemed like a really cool thing for women to do, you know, either to work in strip clubs or to work in these brothels. And so I knew some women who were doing it, and it seemed like, oh, it was no big deal. So that's how I found out about it. And so what I did was I actually visited a brothel in Midtown, and I built the set inside my loft to, you know, that was kind of an actual working model of the brothel. And, you know, I wanted to have something that was controlled and that happened all in one day. But you're right. <laughs> Thank you for liking that element because I sort of wanted it to be the turning point being about work, you know, about labor, you know, and the idea of labor came out of Born in Flames because, I mean, labor is something that I, it really fascinates me that how much labor how much labor interferes with your creative process and what is it that you're willing to give? Is it worth to give 40 hours of your brain power to Kinko's, for example, or is it worth to give eight hours of your body to a brothel? And some people would say, oh, my God, you know, how could you do this? How could you, how could you sell? And I would, I would substitute the word rent, your body in a brothel, for like eight hours a week. And make whatever, like eight times 
uh-huh, and they're like, let's say 400 or $500 in like whatever those, like the late 80s. How, how could you do that? Well, compare that to 40 hours a week working at Kinko's for what, I don't know what the minimum wage, wage was then with taxes taken out. I mean, it's a no-brainer if you're an artist. You'd rather rent your body. But the but what weighs on you? And so for me, the drama was, okay, that's all right if you know your limits. And for the lead character, it was, okay, her limits were well, a day. But when she's forced to work a double shift, that's what broke her. You know, the idea of, no, it, you can't push it like that. You know, because that's where the reality of it, which is that it's not something that you can just brush off. There are elements that make you crack, but it's not the way that society thinks you crack. It's not that. It it seeps through, and it makes you feel like less than a person. You know, it makes you feel, you know, it's because you can't separate your emotions from it, and that's what happened with her. She couldn't separate her emotions from it, but that would be true in another job where you feel dehumanized. You know, what is the dehumanizing aspect of work in another kind of job? You know, where do you feel, you see movies where a guy is working for, you know, in a, what, for, as a youth car salesman or in a a dead-end job and he just decides one day to throw the trash can against the wall and he storms out. What broke him? you know, the de- dehumanization of it. How many people in our culture get to do what they love every minute? One of the things that I do um, as a job is I actually I actually am like a, what do you call it, where you um, help people who are writers um, fix their scripts secretly? Like a script doctor? Yeah, I am. Yeah, but I, I can never tell. I'm not allowed to say who I like work with, but I do that kind of on recommendation because that's what all I've been doing for the last however many years, too many years. Um, but, and, and, you know, if, like, I am so secretive about my age and you can't ever reveal it if you know it because you're probably a great detective, but please don't reveal it. Um, it it's, that's what I've gotten. I've gotten really good at structure, you know, so that's what I do, you know, for, for some people. And it's so much fun to do because um, it, it, really, it really allows you to, to work in genres that you wouldn't normally for yourself. And it, you really get to see, like, okay, how does this work? How does a, how does an hour network crime show work? You know, how does, how does a cable show work? You know, how does, you know, how do these other other things work? You know, so for me, it's fun, and it also because writing can be so lonely. You know, hey, there you are in front of your computer, and Los Angeles can be so so lonely in the sense that it, it was so different in New York during the times I was doing uh, Born in Flames and Working Girls. It was um, it was such a community. I mean, that's that's what happened with both uh, both films. I mean, I, I brought in, there were people who, who were involved. I mean, in Working Girls, Nan Golden took the still photos. You know, I mean, my God, that was like amazing. Um, and she wasn't famous then. It was really... You know, people were just around. You could ask people to do things. And, um, I mean, there's a funny story about the actresses. who They weren't really actresses, but 
you know, I could not get a low-budget SAG contract for the film. And they read the script, and they said, we can't give you a contract. And I, I thought they were talking about budget. But then they said, well, we can't give you a contract because this is pornography. And I said, I was about to argue with them. And then I said, oh, you think this is pornography, and therefore... And they said, yes, and therefore, we don't care what you pay your, your people because it's pornography. We don't handle that. So I said, okay, you're gonna, can you put that in writing that you that because of the nature of this film, it doesn't matter what I pay them? And they said, yes. So they had read the, the text, which was pretty exactly what you saw on screen, and determined that it was pornography. And so I could pay the actors what I could afford, which was very little. You know, it was maybe... Oh, fifty dollars a day, or a hundred a day, or something like that. But it was the only way that I could afford to make that movie and not get closed down by the unions. So it was uh, so ironic because it was so anti-pornography. I mean, if anything, it was meant to do the opposite of. It was meant to be like um, maybe a bucket of cold water on somebody's head. It was meant to be anti-erotic. You know, it was uh, the point of view of the women looking at the men, you know, like, oh, here they come, <laughs> you know, not the other way around. Did I hear right that you actually sent all the actresses to uh, different brothels or to the to same the brothel? Same to the same one to apply for a job, yeah. Oh, yeah, I sent them all to the actual place, which was in the 20s, the east side on the 20s. But the the funny thing is that uh, Amanda Goodwin, who plays the, the really feisty one with the big kids, she got hired, and she was so freaked out by that that she um, came running back, and she didn't know what to do. She was like, oh, my God, I got hired. Should I take the job? I mean, which was kind of ironic because she's a, she was a rich kid. I mean, I actually just saw her, like, cross in front of my car the other day in West Hollywood where she lives now. She just made her first movie. I forgot what it's called, but it's downloadable from Amazon. But she got hired, obviously, because she's busted, quote-unquote busty, is the euphemism. Um, yeah, I did. Because I wanted them to really know what it was like, you know, to actually experience it and see what the rooms felt like and, most importantly, smelled like. Because that's the creepiest thing. You know, as much as the madam wanted to present an idea of normalcy and that this is just a regular living room, the scent of cleaning liquids, cleaning fluids, and a slight sense of sperm is, like, all per pervasive in those kinds of places. But, and I just wanted them to get a, a sense of just that anxiety of it, you know, waiting to be, you know, to be the, the interview, the idea of having to get naked for the, for the madam, which is for two reasons, you know, to, you know, um, to make sure the girls aren't, you know, uh, aren't cops. Although, why I don't... Well, actually, I kind of understand. I mean, the the place was had a, a line to the police station because in case they were getting robbed. So the, the police knew about that place just as they knew about all of the brothels in, in that area. So it was kind of okay. But the second reason was to make sure that the the girls didn't have track marks, you know. Although one of the women um, who who I met when I was doing the research was a junkie, and so I have a a girl in the film, a woman I should say, who is 
I kind of portray her as a junkie, you know, who comes in to visit, you know, and kind of stays a little while and leaves, you know. She was like a junk, kind of a junkie character. But it's most of the women in, who I met did not do drugs. You know, maybe a little marijuana, but not, you know, maybe a little coke, but not serious junkies because the madam would just not have that. You know, it's like the most important thing is building regulars in her business. And she would be the kind of, of madam who would say, okay, it's fine. If you meet a sugar daddy, I will support you. And, you know, this is what we want. We want steady customers. And I would not stand in the way of, um, you know, losing a, a woman to a sugar daddy. But it's not as if really high rollers went into a place like that. You know, it's not it's not that level. You know, I, I suppose I could have made a place about that kind of level, but I was sort of more interested in the middle-of-the-road kind of guys, you know, cause, and the middle-of-the-road kind of money, you know, that kind of thing, you know, the kind of men who use it as a stop before going home to Queens, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, I really appreciated that you had kind of that foil for the audience character, but she really wasn't there until, um, what, like middle, end of the second act, where they were kind of explaining some things to her, but you didn't have that character throughout the the movie. You didn't have the new girl starting her first day, you know, as your main character, and then somebody, you know, taking her under their wing and explaining everything and explaining the terminology. It's like, it's one of the worst trappings of films, (laughs) especially when it comes to, like, a subculture kind of an idea. So I was so glad you didn't have that in there. Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, I didn't want that. Um, you know, it's interesting. I Just as you were talking, I was thinking, oh, well, why did I have her at all? And I think that the reason I had her come in when I did in the second act was as a way to, at the point where Molly, the lead, is starting to become disgusted with it, that I wanted the disgust to be reflected through the new girl, that... that she's starting to see it through the eyes of the new girl who's completely thoroughly disgusted by it. And, you know, that Molly has become a little bit hardened, you know, to it. And through the eyes of the new girl, she sees it herself as new. And that furthers her determination to just see her oppressor not as the men, but as her boss. You know, and the highest compliment I ever got was a guy coming to me after the film and saying, oh, God, I had a boss just like her, you know, just like. But um, what happened was that that it, uh, there was met, there was supposed to be a screening at Hunter College, and this was going to be the first screening ever of the film. And um, I got word that Susan, the madam, was, was gunning for me. Um, she had been leaving these really... Um, scary messages on my, um, on my, uh, I have like a, like a, uh, message machine. I still have the tapes somewhere threatening me, threatening me. Like, I've, I've heard you're doing, you did, did this movie about my place. And if you you told people where I keep my money and you better not show it, I mean it. I'm going to threaten you with legal action. And if, you know, I know people, I know mobsters, and at the last moment, I, I still remember having to walk into Harvey Weinstein's office and say, tell him about this. And then at the last minute, I had to change the name Susan to Lucy because I could it, like cheaply dub Susan and Lucy because they matched. Then uh, the character with the big tits, her name was, her working name was 
Sean, and I had to change it to Dawn because that matched. I mean, her name wasn't even Sean. I mean, it was that was a fake name anyway, but she got upset too and started calling me like, oh my God, if people find out that I'm working here, so I changed her name too. Um, and and so I'd heard they were in the audience that day and they were going to, they were going to just disrupt the screening. And what happened was that the projectionist like mixed up the reels. And so the screening never happened, you know, so that was just, so the screening was called off, you know, the audience, the, the auditorium was full and then projectionist, projectionist uh, screwed up. But, um, but yeah, I mean, it was, the villain was supposed to be, if there was a villain at all, it was meant to be, the um the madam but the madam mostly for the fact that she wasn't really being honest i mean she wasn't calling a spade a spade as it were you know she was putting euphemisms on everything you know she was she was living she was kind of not being straight with molly at all and that's what turned things and then what happened was that a couple of the customers turned things you know they were a couple of them, well, one of them, the one from Michigan, actually, was um, the one who went to Kalamazoo, <laughs> ironically enough, was was treated her like a whore, you know? And once she started to feel like a whore, even the, the last client she has, who basically is offering to be her sugar daddy, makes her feel like a whore, you know? And she'd felt like a working girl. And a working girl is honorable, and a whore is not, you know? And... All of a sudden, it's she. It's because the the madam has asked her more of her more than has been so radically insensitive to where Molly is, you know, because of her own selfishness, you know, that you know she she quits, you know, and bikes off, you know. So, but you know, going back to that idea of well, what kinds of stories are possible about? women or men in the sex industries and there really aren't many stories you could tell you know it's either they they die in a bad way or they quit um or they what they they get out you know usually they meet you know what pretty woman they meet someone who liberates them who they can fall in love with who can kind of ignore the fact that they've been hookers you know so where else can you go with that story without repeating yourself. One of the things that I regret, and I have many, is that around the year 1999, uh, one of the one of my co-producers on Working Girls came to me and and said that there were some Europeans who wanted to do a sequel to Working Girls, like Working Girls. I think it was at that point uh, 15 years afterwards, and I thought they wouldn't be like those characters would no longer be because there's only two ways to go with a working girl story. Either you get out or you don't, you know, (laughs) either. And I couldn't, and I thought, well, what would it be? What would the story be? And I realized actually only a few years ago when I saw the girlfriend experiences, yeah, that's what it would be. You know, it would be, it would be that kind of story. If, you know, and Steven Soderbergh did it, you know, it would have, it would not be, the same women, obviously, you know, either either that or one of the women would become a madam. But yeah, there are still places like that. But I think that things have really changed. And I now with social media, 
it's really become either escorts or much more of a kind of social media generated kind of relationship. You know, it's gone from the backs of what the equivalent of what would in Detroit, what would be the equivalent of the LA Weekly or the Village Voice. You would probably find, you know, connections online, the equivalent of Craigslist, you know, that sort of connection. And it would be escorts that way, you know, instead of actual brothels where men would go and choose women. But I would bet you that there are brothels in, in, in Detroit, you know, where 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 men would stop by. And it's, it's inevitable that they would continue to exist because it's a resource, you know, and that's kind of why I made it, you know, because it just seemed like it's, it's one of those things that will never go away, can never go away, because it's a natural resource that, you know, women have that, you know, and I was always really conscious of the idea that it's not something that, that men should or society should put an onus on unless women were forced into it and decided that they didn't want to do it, you know, as in the case of like underage women, you know, or underage girls or children, you know, that it is a natural resource. And, you know, especially living in Los Angeles now, I mean, my God, it has and always, always has existed in the gray area for forever, casting couches and, men, you know, paying women's rent or various other ways, you know, so if a woman decides to put a price on it, like, okay, I'd rather have cash, why not? The idea now that uh, there are uh, forms of safe sex is so important and prostitutes, except for street hookers who may have drug problems, have always been paragons of safe sex. I mean, there's been more, you know, every, every time there's a deviation from that, I don't know if you had read about that little bit of deviation from that in the porn industry. Did you read about that, where um, there was an outbreak of um, HIV in the porn industry and the refusal to wear condoms? We just talked to Sharon Mitchell a few weeks ago, and she was talking about how she kind of got drummed out of the out of the business of doing testing and screening and all this kind of stuff. And they, it was just like, you know, after a while, she was you know, fighting City Hall as far as all that kind of stuff went and what a pain it was, yeah. Well, it is a, it is a pain. It's terrible. I mean, the idea that, that men want fantasy, you know, and the condoms stand in the way of fantasy. It's kind of interesting when you when you think about it because, I mean, to me, like in Working Girls, one of the, I mean, one of my favorite shots is actually when um, Molly takes the condom off and puts it in the Kleenex, you know, because it's, it's like one of those moments where it's it's supposed to not exist. You know, it's supposed to kind of magically go away. You know, it's supposed to kind of real, be subtle, but not exist for the customer. But for me, that's kind of re- reality. You know, it's kind of the thing that a girlfriend would do with her boyfriend, which is make the condom disappear. You know, okay, well, we had a condom, but now it doesn't exist. It's kind of over there. I mean... That that would be something a girlfriend does with a relatively new boyfriend, you know. I mean, after a while, I guess if you're with somebody for a really long time, you have different kind of birth control or whatever, um, either that or, you know, you're kind of more playful with it. But, you know, the idea of approximating that kind of girlfriend experience has always been what middle-class prostitution has been about, you know, as opposed to 
the other kinds of prostitution, but I was um, really always interested in doing something that fit that kind of very middle-class prostitution because I thought there was, there was such a huge range of it. And when people thought of hooker, they always thought of the extreme ranges, the street hooker or the really high-class, the middle barrels kind of escort. When I came to New York, there were a few things that I really believed in strongly, and one was that white middle-class women shouldn't define the language about feminism, which is why I made Born in Flames. You know, I just thought, why should we put words in the mouths of women who believed in the same things? Why should they speak our language? We should have simultaneous simultaneous languages. But then the other thing, too, was that um, so much of feminism was defined by several issues, and one of them happened to be uh, uh, the issue of pornography, and I was always... Uh, not, I, I wouldn't say, well, I guess I would say pro-pornography in the sense of um, I never thought that pornography did any of the things that, that women said it did. I didn't think that it promoted rape. I didn't think any of that, any of that. I thought that we should just be able to control the images more, um, control eroticism, be able to put out the images that we liked as women. Now, I do feel a little bit, I would put a gray shade to that now, looking back, is that I think that people, men and women, have been so isolated because of the disconnection and, you know, the amount of time we spend on on our computer screens, um, that I do think there has been a desensit- uh, desensitizing effect and um, kind of a desexual, uh, desexualizing of ourselves uh, that and a masturbatory kind of thing, either actual or not, that it's been so hard for people to really connect. And I would use the show Girls as a kind of example of that. Um, do, you, do you watch that show, Girls? I don't, unfortunately, no. Well, I don't know if I would say unfortunate. I think it's kind of fascinating. Um, but I do think that it represents a kind of... I mean, really, really disconnected, disconnected girls. I think it represents them well, but a really, really tiny, tiny segment of the population. But the idea that of kids, you know, I would say kids is like anyone under 30, of being very disconnected from their sexuality and um, the idea of watching so much uh, pornography, um and masturbating all the time or not. I think it's great if you masturbate all the time, but I think it's bad if you don't, if you watch a lot, but you can't masturbate or you somehow become so desensitized that you become unmasturbatory. You know, I mean, it would be great if people got themselves off all the time, but I think that they're not. And then they also don't know how to connect with other people. I mean, so I actually think that uh, the role of working girls is actually a healthy one. You know, because I think sex begets sex, you know, so that that the role of acting things out on any level, whether it's with a working girl or whether it's with the dominatrix or whether, you know, it, the expression of the expression or interaction of fantasy or the enacting of it as opposed to letting it just exist, if it's a transaction that's mutual, I think is a healthy thing. So, you know, I still think I should have done the sequel. You know, I still think I should have challenged myself and really 
tried to do something interesting with it. But at, at that point, I all I could see was like a bowling ball going down, like you're trying to go down the center, and all I could see was it going off to the side. But now I kind of beat myself up about not being creative enough in thinking, you know, of, of, of thinking of like, well, where could a story go? And, and not involve those particular people, you know, not involve, you know, I imagine the, the, that the Sean Don character would have been the madam. She would have been the most likely one, you know, to, you know, somebody who protest, who protested that much, you know, would have ended up being that, you know, biology is destiny, you know, in some ways, you know, so it, it, it's quite possible, but none of the girls would have been there, you know, they would have all moved on, you know, would have, it would have been, you know, either that or April, the one who was would have had to get out, you know, but she, it's almost like she was too dark and bitter to be an interesting madam, you know, she might have turned into a dominatrix, maybe the whole thing should have, it's very hard to, you know, for a long time I was trying to make a film about a dominatrix based on a really interesting story by Alyssa Wald called Meeting the Master, you know, it was about a, it was about a, a dominatrix who started out as a slave and who was, who was rejected by her master and it, but it was like an O. Henry story and I could never take it beyond a short story and I had the rights to it for a really long time and I probably could still do it but I met a lot of dominatrixes in New York and the real ones scared me because you know, every working girl has got to learn a little bit about being a dominatrix a fake dominatrix you know you have to learn how to spank people and you also have to learn how a little bit to be a kind of, it's like a pseudo, a pseudo mistress and a pseudo slave, you know, like pretend to be tied up and to pretend to beat somebody up. But the real mistresses, oh my God, they're frightening. I mean, the ones who come from the real mistress schools who really do enjoy um, administering punishment to men. And I met some of them who have real dungeons and I, couldn't let my brain go there for too long because I really don't understand them. There's a, a woman um, who I met who, when I met her, she was she sat upright with her spine just completely like ramrod straight, with a white blouse buttoned to the top, impeccable white blouse, and um, she was Catholic, and she wrote a book called the the Correct Sadist. I don't think that's the name of it. And her whole, her book was overwritten, like flowery language. And um, it all came from a kind of Catholicism. And she was really a dominatrix, like the real thing. And it was the scariest thing I've ever, ever read. And she was one of the scariest people I've ever met. She was so proper and everything, everything had to be done right. And the idea of that, I mean, and this was a woman who did everything. I mean, the idea, she did cutting, she did burials, she did suffocation, she did all of those things. And actual dungeons, the real dungeons and all of that, I mean, they're frightening places and they're not like going to a lot of the places I frequented on, that used to be on the, the west side near the river where there were domination games. You know, it's nothing like, you know, in Working Girls where you see um, a guy being spanked with a ping-pong paddle and, you know, uh, that's just play. You know, it's spanking, is play, and that happens in regular relationships where you like your hair tugged or you like a little bit of spanking. That's just play. 
but the idea that you know I, I'm of real fetishizing, you know, the idea that then that always fascinates me. I mean, that completely fascinates me. The idea of well, why is it that one person likes one thing? Like, you know, what is your get off thought? You know, not like I'm asking you, like you would really tell me you know, or put it into words. Like, what is that thing that you need to think of at that very moment to like make you come? You know, I think everybody has that. You know, it's like what when you're watching a porn, porn a, a porn, porno film, like what is that one image that takes you over the top? But for people with fetishes, like, well, why is it that they like rubber? What is, why is it they want to be suffocated? Why, why is it they like the feeling of strangulation? Why is it a man is a leg man or a tit man or a woman likes biceps or she likes skinny arms in a guy or she likes a man's ass? I mean, it's like, or why is it, a, you know, I do understand the spectrum of sexuality, you know, I do understand that some, I understand, and this is why I hate about cult, this culture, not understanding that some people are born born gay or lesbian. You're just born that way. Or the whole spectrum of you're born either male or female or in the spectrum. You're just born that way. And that's who you have to be. It's just nature. It's nature. But fetish is different because that's sometimes an early experience that's so early that we don't even remember what it is, you know, but the idea of being a dominatrix, an actual dominatrix and performing that all the time is a really, is a really scary thing. But the idea of doing a movie about it and being in that world the entire time is, and waking up every day and having to be in that world to shoot it is really, is really scary. Working Girls was interesting for me because it wasn't just about working girls. It was about labor, and it was about a lot of things that you deal with. I mean, at least I deal with in a day-to-day world. You know, a lot of transa- uh, transaction sexuality, um, male-female relationships, you know, worker-boss relationships, those kinds of things, and also female-female relationships. You know, how do you deal with downtime? You know, <laughs> how do you deal with how do you deal with just but no time. How do you deal with wasting time? How do you deal with it's triangulation of relationships, those kinds of things? So it wasn't as if you're going to a really hard, difficult place all the time. Like, for example, a difficult film, and I don't know how they made it, was in this last year, that Robert Redford movie, Where They're Out at Sea. I just wonder, how do you do that every day? How do you go and you make that film every day and you set up your cameras and you make that film? It seems like a really difficult thing to do that, you know. But I suppose if you're a film junkie and you just love to set up your camera and do that and do another, okay, the storm is coming in again and today we're going to shoot the things falling off the counter at the angle with the water coming up to your neck. It's like, oh, my God. How do you do that? I don't know. You know, I write all the time, but I've had so many uh, blinking green lights that have gone red and so many kind of natural disasters that have happened and um, also major events that have happened, you know, things almost ready to go. And then major events happen like, you know, 9-11 happens on the day that, for example, I'm flying to New York for final script meetings with Susan Sarandon and you know, I'm, I'm with my producers, and we're the final plane to land on JetBlue. When it lands, we see the planes hit the World Trade Center, and it goes down, and it's like, oh, my God. 
this just happened, and we have to walk against the tide into Manhattan. And, of course, Susan Sarandon gets involved with the relief effort, you know, with the firemen. And, of course, you know, anything that I do is completely sort of countercultural. And for a couple of years after that, everything is freedom fries. So I have to wait, like, 10 years in order to be able to be able to critique the kind of, you know, the, the culture the way I want to, you know, for any kind of, you know, and get any kind of financing to do that. Either that or go back to the old way, which part of me is trying to do. But these days, any any kid with a camera can make a movie, so it's it's really about content. You know, it's difficult. So, you know, I write every day, but mostly it goes into the closet. But I'm hopeful, because I don't really know anything else I, I could do. But I still am trying to make the film that I was trying to make when not, when 9-11 happened. You know, it'll be a different actress than Susan Sarandon. But it's it's a film called Rialto, and it's about, you know, a woman who, who has a very mysterious woman who runs a movie theater and shows foreign films and, you know, she, this kid falls in love with her, but it turns out that what she's really doing is running a secret abortion clinic in the basement. But it's really not about that. It's about when one freedom go, goes, they all go. And the sad thing is that it's gotten worse in this country about abortion than when I first wanted to make it, which was when I did Working Girls, I met a filmmaker named Kristen Blackwood who was a documentary filmmaker and he had like seed of that story and I said, I love that. Can I have this idea? And I then he died actually a long time ago and I've been wanting to make this and I wrote the script years ago and have been rewriting it in probably a thousand and twenty drafts and I always thought, I have to make this. And I've written some things in between but I keep going to that. And I keep thinking, well, it's good I didn't make it when I did because it's better now. And I keep adding layers, and and it keeps getting worse in terms of abortion. And I'm not a political person in the sense that I can't get into the kinds of politics where you're actually going out and doing the actual legislative stuff, you know, the Wendy Davis stuff, or it's just not my nature to do that. My nature is to more be the the creative stuff, you know, to write about it or to transform it. But if it gets done, then I'll be okay. I don't need to make a zillion movies. You know, I really, I see the kind of filmmakers who are like that and I admire them, you know, whether it's Spike, you know, or Soderbergh or whoever. And they've made a few films that I love and then they've made a few films that it's like, well, why did you make that film? They make films because they have to make films. You know, they just have to, have to, have to. They just love their toys. And for me, it's like, I need to make this film because I look at movies today and I look at TV shows and guess what? They don't often let characters have an abortion. They have miscarriages. They're not allowed. And you look at Us Magazine and you look at everything and they're... They're worshipping at the baby bump, baby bump, baby bump, baby bump. You know, and I, I spent like three years in Watts. I sort of was kind of doing a documentary that I never finished because I found out that this community black woman, a community leader, was actually a slum landlord. And I, I'm really not a documentary filmmaker, but I was shot about 300 hours of footage. And one time I put my camera down and I asked her, I said, Watts is a half an hour away from 
from where I live, West Hollywood, and I was volunteering at a thrift store, and it just turned out that I had an old Volvo, and I was bringing stuff down and that they couldn't sell, you know, a lot of baby stuff. And I, it's shameful to me that there's poverty in America and people are sending stuff because of tsunamis like a, a thousand, you know, miles away, you know, or more. But I, I asked Sweet Alice, you know, this was the name of this community leader, what would you do if you there was a 14-year-old or a 15-year-old in your community who was raped or otherwise didn't want her child? And she said, bring me the Bible, you know, or whatever. Same thing in terms of, you know, she had parenting classes, which were an anger management classes, which always turned out to be Bible study classes, of course. But, um, and when I would see like a lesbian, clearly a lesbian, in one of those, I would ask her, well, what about her? And it was always bring me the Bible. You know, what I wanted to say was, where in the Bible does it say, can you eat shrimp? You know, but the refusal to allow abortion in so many states and fewer and fewer states and the fear of abortion doctors, you know, the fact that there's, you know, that's why, I mean, I just don't even get into it. You know, if somebody does not believe in abortion, I don't engage. I just walk away. I mean, I don't have any close friends who are pro-life. I just can't imagine being friends with them, you know, because I know I can't change their minds. But I, the fact that I still want to make this movie or the movie still needs to be, and it's not contemporary because I don't want to make something that hits people over the head, that's the next movie I want to make. And if I can make it, I'll feel as if I did something. But that's why I'm saying to you, it doesn't matter how long it takes your book to happen. You know, you, you, know, you, you have to work. I mean, it's really terrible that you have to have a, a job job you know, where you feel like you're watching two, two trains crash because when your book comes out, it's going to be valuable and people will want to read it. And it doesn't matter that it came out a year later or two years later or five years later, it's going to be, you know. And, I mean, I really do believe that writing sustains a person. You know, it's the it's that probably subconscious part of you that's the wheels are always spinning, you know, and the fact that that's the thing that is driving, your driving force one of the scripts that I've been writing now is about Bob Marley. Usually the rule is you have to outline before you wade in, but I had to, I had to, uh, I spent a lot of time in Jamaica. This is so not, this is so not for me. I mean, at one point Oliver Stone was attached to this. And who knows if he still is, because we had to completely re reformulate it so that none of the major songs are going to be used in it. And it's totally a take on Bob Marley that is not seen, because Bob Marley was actually a very dark character, you know, really very, very, very dark. And um, I couldn't outline it because I had to, I outlined maybe the first act, but I had to wade into it and sort of wait until I could... I would go to sleep really early and wake up really early and kind of wait until I heard his voice in my head. But when I got the beginning and I knew what the end was, but I got so lost in the middle. I got so lost in the middle because I didn't outline it in the middle of the second act. I was caught there for maybe three months, but that's normal. <laughs> that is so normal. The middle of the second act is like, is, is like, it's like being in this, like one of the circles of hell or purgatory or whatever. How did you get into the business and how did you come to be in Working Girls? I was a theater major at Skidmore College and after graduating I moved down to New York City and I um, I saw an ad I think in like 
backstage or something like that. So I went down and I, I auditioned. And um, I think it went really well. And they seemed to be interested in me, but I, you know, they still hadn't given me the part. And I didn't really know what kind of movie it was. I mean, when I read the script, I didn't know if it was pornography because there was so much sex in it and it was so blatant. And and I, I wasn't sure... So I had my old acting teacher read the script. My 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 teacher from Skidmore, who had been the head of the department, he was now teaching acting in uh, New York City. So he read it and he says, "Yeah, this you could take this." So I really wanted it. I'd only been in the city for a couple months, so I was walking down Central Park South, past the Plaza Hotel, and I just remember thinking to myself, damn it, Lizzie, I know I could do it. I know I could do the part. If you would just give me the part, and all of a sudden Lizzie is walking the other direction. And she walks right up to me, and she's like, I want you to play Dawn. And you you know, think of all of those millions of people in New York, and I run into her at that moment. So that's how I got Working Girls. It was my first film right out of college. Now, how did you prepare for the role for that? We did a lot. We had a really, really heavy, heavy... um rehearsal period. I mean, if I remember correctly, we didn't shoot the movie till like April and we started rehearsals like in January. A lot of like, I like to give credit to myself for a lot of my best, the best words in there because we, things would just come up in rehearsal and, you know, we would say things. And a lot of that, you know, a lot of her, that wasn't even really her real first name. Uh, Dawn wasn't, we had to change the names later. Uh, I can't even remember what my, it might have been Sean. Anyway, uh, like a lot of that stuff, like here they come on the run with the hand. That was like all of my personality thrown into there, basically. Just having as much fun with the role as I could and staying within the parameters, obviously, of what was scripted. But we did a lot of rehearsal. And then um, one of the girls, I think it was Louise, a couple of the girls had actually gone to the, the brothel where I haven't told this story in such a long time. I told it when we were at the Cannes Film Festival. Um, one of the girls was at the broth had gone to the brothel and they had not had very favorable experiences like Susan would rush them out because this is based on a real brothel. So I uh, I decided, you know, I had a really good handle of the of the, the role, but I wanted to, you know, get in deeper, you know. So I decided to call and make an appointment. And I said, my name is Corky. And so I called and I made an appointment and I went to the brothel. It was in mid Midtown. And um, I show up and they take me upstairs. And um, I'm in this room with some other, the other girls and they're getting ready and they're kind of chit-chatting and, and I have to get completely undressed because any any part of your clothing is going to be considered uh, uh, if you're a cop. So you have to be completely naked. So I get completely undressed, and I walk into the office where Susan was, the madam, and I'm sitting there naked in front of her. She's behind a desk, and we start interviewing, and I say, my name's Corky, and I come up with this whole story that I had been working in Europe as a, as a high-class call girl, and um, I moved back to the United States, and I was uh, working the hotels, like the Essex House, and an executive from my, my stepfather's office saw me on the street, and he thought I was hailing a cab, and I thought it'd be safer to move indoors. So that's why I'm here. And she, you know, we have a great interview, and knowing that the other girls, she says, well, I'll give you a call, let me, you know, 
and and knowing that the other girls were kind of rushed out of there, I said, um, "Hey, Susan, would you would you mind if I take a quick look around?" And she's like, "Oh, Corky, you stay as long as you like," because our set was like kind of designed like the brothel. So I get dressed and I kind of check things out and I go downstairs, and I remember I was sitting in this big like Pier One import chair, wicker chair, and there were like there were two couches in front of me, like facing each other. And, and Susan was on the opposite side of me facing me. And there was like two Johns on the right. And there were like two hookers, you know, two working girls on the left. And I'm kind of making chit chat about the building because the building was a historic building and talking about the architecture and, you know, just kind of sitting there. And, and Susan says to the guys, well, do you know who you'd like to see? And they both turn and look at me. And she says, oh, no, she's just visiting. And so I would tell people, not only did I get the job, but I could have started work right away. <laughs> so then I went and I met Lizzie. And I remember like, oh, my God, she wants to hire me. She wants to hire me. And she's like, well, of course, those boobs. And I said, oh, my God, that's right. I was totally naked because I didn't even remember sitting there nude, you know? And then I had, then she started calling me on my, my answering service, my answering machine, I, because I'd given her my real phone number because I didn't, you know, I didn't want to lie. Cause right when I was leaving, she's like, what's your phone number? And I, I just gave her my real phone number. And, um, she started, I remember we started, um, we started shooting the movie. This, so this was closer to when we were shooting the movie. And I remember I was uh, getting these phone calls. And finally, I was like, what do I tell her? And so I just finally called her back. And I said, you know, Susan, I really appreciate the, you know, the opportunity. But I have, a, I have a sugar daddy. And he really doesn't like the idea of me working. So I will, you know, sorry. So I did that. And then I also worked one night in a Japanese club which was really crazy now what was that like that was like the closest i thought that i could really 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 get to prostitution without actually being you know having sex it was back in the days you know back in the 80s it was when japan was just overflowing with money right and they had these tiny little clubs like i would tell you that the club was probably 500 square feet it was tiny and maybe even smaller i mean and there was just like a little bar with all these bottles of Chevis Regal with, with Japanese names on them of the, of the members. It was a private club. And then there was about three tables. And in the corner was a piano. And there was a person playing piano. And I went on a Friday night. I, f- I found it in one of the magazines. And I was hired. And um, I was, uh, it was dress up that night that night. And they gave me the name Akina. She was like a famous Japanese uh, singer at the time, so I had I was like in this white feather boa and this t- you know short little tight dress, and our job was to basically serve the men. You know I had to sit at a table. I couldn't speak. I would light their cigarettes. I would pour their drinks, and I would dance with them. And they would get really really drunk, and they would get up and sing karaoke. Um, and geez, I just remember that 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 piano player's tip jar was just like freaking overflowing with like. Money. I mean, she must have had like $800 in there, and it was just the night was just beginning. And so I was sitting at this table, and this guy goes, go sit over there next to the, our chairman. And so I have to go sit next to the, the head of the company. And, I, you know, I'm very, I have to be very subservient, and that is just not my personality. I mean, it's kind of, it's kind of bothering me a little bit of how I'm being treated, you know, but I'm trying to stay in 
in character and trying not to let it get to me. And then finally they moved me over to another table and I'm sitting with this like young guy, really nice guy. And I pour his drink and I'm lighting a cigarette and he says, you don't look like you belong here. I was like, oh, you know, it's my first night. So, you know, maybe it's just, uh, maybe that's, that's part of it. But, um, you know, I was told that many of the girls went on with, with the men if they wanted to. And I left that night and I couldn't go back. I mean, it was just so demeaning. I just, I couldn't go back. So, um, but I did do that. I mean, I lasted the night, but it was, it was pretty demeaning, you know? Yeah, it sounds like a, how close would you say that you were to like the Dawn personality, that kind of more outgoing and, and vociferous personality? Well, I'm sure I was nothing like Dawn. I mean, as I said, in that, in that film, all the stuff, you know, I really, I felt like Lizzie cast me. Well, Lizzie cast me originally because she liked the way that I looked. And then I ended up losing a bunch of weight before the, the film. And she was so pissed when I showed up. Skinny, you know. I was pretty thin. I, I, I think I gained weight as the film went on. But because um, we shot in sequence. Well, basically, they shot all the sex scenes first. And then we shot, then we started in sequence. I, you know, as I said, I just bought a lot of my own flavor to... I was a very, you know, natural actor. I, I didn't really um, subscribe to any kind of method. And, you know, I just kind of brought my own, just brought my heart and soul into it, you know. It was a really, really intense movie, obviously. And uh, But the women were so great. You know, the girls that I was working with, Alan and Louise and Jan, I mean, they were just, everybody was great. I, I, I don't know. I never met the real person that I was supposed to be portraying. You're talking about having to be quiet and submissive at this Japanese club, and the character that you played was so um, vivacious, and it seems like that probably is much more fitting with you. Oh, yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. Telling it like it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. The, 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 the being the submissive at the Japanese club in the mid-'80s is not me, and that's why, I mean, I couldn't, I was going to try to stay at that job as long as I could, because I really wanted to, I wanted to, you know, I can empathize with, with, with prostitutes. I mean, that was, Liz used to say, like, you really do have a good handle on why they do it. You know, I, I got, I got my head around how a woman could get kind of engulfed in that world, you know, and I didn't put any judgment on it, but I am not a person who, I mean, I'm a person who likes to be told what to do, as we could see in that movie when she gets, you know, pissed off at, at the at the madam and at Lucy and at you know John's and stuff like that, um, you know she just doesn't really want to be there. What well, what was it like on the set? Was what was the work, working relationship like? As far as with each other or with Lizzie or um, with each other, I mean, it's I imagine it was probably pretty tight spaces and to have all these um, actors and actresses in this kind of confined area. Well, I, you know, I just remember it being so much fun. I mean, it was my first film. I, I remember it just, you know, li- what I loved about Lizzie as a director, it, you know, and it could be for a number of reasons, but she didn't ta- she didn't interfere and tamper with her actors. And I'm kind of that way as a director now, too. It's just there's nothing worse than when a director gets in the way of actors. So I think what she did is she hired people that she really stopped were were she well well casted and you know louise smith was a really talented actress and a real real rock for us ellen mcelduff was awesome i mean and so i think we just all kind of fed and played off of each other 
we did stay within the script. It wasn't like we were ad-libbing or anything like that. Nothing like that happened. Once the script was locked, we 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 were totally on the script, but we, we did have time in rehearsals to kind of flush out our characters and, and add some add some nuance to them. But I just I just found it like it was just such a camaraderie. I mean, I think what you see on screen, you know, when I watch the movie, I mean, I think we, we look like we're we all get along and, and, and we pretty much did. And it was kind of fun every time somebody new came in, you know? It's oh the new girls here or you know, it it was it was fun. Now you said you went over to Cannes with this. What was that like? That was really an incredible experience. I was the only actress from the film that went because I flew myself and put myself up. I mean, this was a low-budget movie, and they didn't want to, you know. So I remember my mom was going to go with me, and then there was some kind of bombing, and she's like, well, have fun, honey. <laughs> you know, just don't sit close to any front window. Sit in the back of the restaurant. And so I got there. When I got there, it was a really – we were in the director's fortnight, and Spike um, uh, Lee – Spike Lee, right? Yeah, and that's Spike Jones. Yeah, Spike Lee had um, something uh, – something, uh, what was his movie? Something's um, – uh, She's Gotta yeah, Have she's It. Yeah, She's Gotta that? Have It was there, and Jim Jarmusch's um, Come to – I'll think of it in a second. I'll look it up. Um, Stranger anyway, Than Paradise. Yeah. And there was another uh, New York filmmaker, another woman that was in the director's fortnight. And, and so, you know, we were nobody was really there. Everybody was afraid to come over. So the first week in Cannes was like, I mean, it was kind of quiet in the sense, and I got a lot of press. In fact, I was like on the front page of, of one of the big French newspapers along with the biggest French. I was on one side and the, the this huge French actress was on, on the other side. And um and then slowly we started telling people to you know people were get getting word back to the states that it's safe come over you know because back then it was it was a little different time you know it was uh, things didn't travel as quickly as they did today so um, I remember going to the the premiere and it was very exciting and it was our world premiere and I went on stage with Lizzie in front of like seventeen hundred people. You know, they introduced us to, you know, all these people, and then they played the film, and I'll, I remember we got a standing ovation, and I'll never forget it. It probably changed, my, changed me forever and probably why I eventually left acting. But I just remember when we're getting the standing ovation, I could just feel the people closing in on me. It was just really overwhelming, and they were just smiling and wanting to touch me and it was just it was you know I was just waiting tables like you know a week before that and then um I we went out to the lobby and Sid and Nancy was lined up to come in because they were the next movie that was going to be shown and there's like 3,000 people I mean it was packed wall to wall and people are running up to me and asking me for my autograph and it was just really overwhelming and I remember turning to this woman next to me as she was staying in the apartment with us and I said can you get I I could see this this uh, motorcycle down on the Quasette from where I was. And I'm like, can you get me out of here? And she, I remember she got me through the crowd, and I went up to this person on this motorcycle, and I'm like, can you get me out of here? And I remember he took me home. I mean, I didn't even go to any parties. I was so freaked out by, you know, this was like something that I wanted all my life. And, you know, I was a very serious theater, you know, as a theater major and it's all I could ever dream of as as being an actor but actress but when that happened to me and it just it just really it, it scared me and so when I resumed my acting career as I you know 
I used to carry that film around when it came to L.A. I was carried around in the can, in these two cans, trying to show it to a few people, you know, when I was trying to get an agent and stuff like that. Um, I just didn't have the drive. I mean, I was still trying to do it, but I just never was the same after that experience. It just kind of frightened me. That, And then that whole week, you know, everybody's coming up to you. Uh, they're looking at you, they're staring at you, they're trying to touch you, and it just, it just, you know, finally have to say, you don't want to be rude, but there was a couple times I had to say, like, you, you need to leave me alone, you know, like, it was just, it was just people didn't know their boundaries. How did the experience of working girls compare to that of, say, beach balls? Oh, shit, don't even bring up, I hate that fucking movie. I've seen it twice and I've cried twice. Uh, it's like a horrible Roger, you know, the only good thing about that film, that's an example of when a director doesn't allow their actors to do their job. That guy, whoever that guy was, would give me so many line readings. He would not even let me do anything. That was just, you know, that movie was made. I don't even know what it was made for, but it was a Roger Corman film. And, you know, it, it, got, it did get me my SAG card, but it was horrible. You know, it was just a horrible film. And, and, the director was terrible, and I mean, it was fun being with the other actors because, you know, being with actors is fun, and, you know, working is fun, but it just, you know, that, it, it was really hard after working girls to, to work for me because everybody wanted me to be a hooker in their movie, and it's like my, my, my resume started reading like a prostitute's calling card, beach balls, whore, working girls. Um, you know, Beauty and the Beast, I did an episode. They wanted me to play hooker. Um, so it. I decided after I did whore, I had already kind of quit acting. And um, I was decided to take five years off because I, I looked really young for my age. And I was getting, I was going for auditions. Like I went and read for Stella, um, a 14-year-old when I was like in my 20s. I mean, it was just re- ridiculous. And then, um, so I decided... I'm just going to take five years off and maybe when I come back, I will look like I'm in college, you know? And, and then I remember Catherine Bigelow called me at home and she wanted me to come read for her in point break. And I didn't want to, there was nudity and I didn't want to do any nudity because I got out of my nudity in working girls. I was supposed to have a sex scene and I got out of it. And there was another scene that they shot me in working girls that I asked the, cinematographer Judy Rolla, if you see any of my boobs, will you please turn off the camera? And she did. And there was one shot of me, but Lizzie said she couldn't use it because the camera went off too fast. I just, you know, I, I just wasn't ready to do any nudity. And then, and then I get a call from Linda Francis for this, you know, Ken Russell's whore. And I just kind of did that as a favor. It was it was supposed to be no lines. I wasn't supposed to have any a scene or anything like that. Um, it was just kind of just playing Teresa Russell's friend in a bar, and so and then I got a scene. I think I got a few words in that, and then that was like one of the last things I did. And then I went in. I got out of the business and went into entertainment publicity for a while, and I worked on Misery and Silence of the Lambs, and worked with Nancy Seltzer, and you know just. Rep some, you know, help rep some clients and that kind of thing, and then fell into producing by just purely by accident, and it kind of took me in a whole new, different direction. Yeah, not just producing, but it looks like you're editing, writing, and directing stuff. So, how did that kind of come about? Well, it just it was. I think it's just an evolution of uh, 
just when I, you know, it's kind of like working at a restaurant from the bottom and then owning one, you know, it's a, I just, I kind of fell into producing by accident and started acquiring true life stories and properties and setting them up, but I didn't really have the experience to get them made. And during that time I started writing. I think I had written one screenplay before, but nothing that I thought was, would be serious. And then I wrote another script that was optioned by Bette Midler's company. And then I just started writing more and more and more. And, um, I had a project at Disney that I had optioned the true life rights to. It was about Pat Williams, who was the, uh, helped franchise the Orlando, Orlando magic. And he had adopted 14 children and we're going to do this Disney movie. And then it went into turnaround and then Michelle Pfeiffer's company came on board and then it went out of turnaround and Disney was doing it, but I kind of got kicked off the pro- uh, project. I mean, I was still attached to it, but I, and then, um, after a couple of years, that went into turnaround. And I thought to myself, if I can't get a movie made with Michelle Pfeiffer, I'm screwed. Because that, that was when she was at the height of her career. I mean, she was a big star. And, you know, I really didn't know the semantics of how to make a movie and how hard it was to make. But I got some development turnaround money, which is abandonment money, about five grand. And I made my first short film. And the first day of shooting that, I just thought, oh, my God, this is what I want to do. I never wanted to be a director. I never thought about directing. I always was very content. I was always so happy being an actor. It's all I ever wanted to be. And then when I started producing, I thought, oh, I really like producing. And then I liked writing. But when I started, when I directed that first short, I just thought, this is what I want to do. And then um, I opened up my own business at the time just for cash flow. When the industry was changing, people were, you know, losing their jobs and people weren't setting up things because the movie of the week went away and just, you know, content delivery was changing of what people wanted. And it was just getting tougher and tougher, but I had I had opened up a really cool hair salon on Melrose and I had built an office for myself in the back room, kinda of like how the the mob used to have an Italian restaurant and then in the back room they're doing deals. Well that's kinda of like my salon was. Um, I call it was called the Buzz Stop. So I started my production company as Buzz Entertainment, just so when the the messenger guy would come up, he would know where to deliver the pick up and deliver, you know, scripts. And um, I was it became really really successful, and it was starting to consume me. And I thought, oh my God, if I don't do something now, I'm it's all going to pass me by. So I made another short film, um, and then I started with thirty five thousand dollars, and I. Started, I'm in, I said, I'm going to make a movie. And I started with $35,000, and I started the ball rolling. And um, three months later, I had a small budget for my film, and I made Living Till the End, which was really an incredible experience for me. And it was premiered at the Hamptons Film Festival, and I was invited to other film festivals. And I kept on getting invited, but I just got so tired. I mean, it's it's a lot of work going to film festivals. Um, we just missed Slam Dance by at the eleventh hour because I was in contact with Kathleen McGinnis at the time, and they changed their direction, and I just missed being nominated for uh, John Cassavetes at this at this at the Independent Spirit Awards back in two thousand five that I found out later, which um, would have changed my career. That I think um, Steven Sont- uh, Soderbergh's um, bubble got in instead of us but um it was a really great little film it was well received and actually i'm re-releasing it it's being re-released 
spot out on VOD uh, probably next month. Uh, and then I just, you know, I, I shot Telling of the Shoes, uh, which I just got distribution on that just was released on VOD. That film, it's based on a play I wrote, and I rewrote it into script form and tried to break it down as a script. And I, 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 I emailed my friends and I said, I'm trying to raise $10,000 to make a movie. I'll give uh, my investors 50%, and I raised the money within two days. Um, I could have done it myself, but I just wanted a story to go, and I, I took this script, and I called agents and managers, and I said, um, I'm making this movie for $10,000. I'm going to shoot 94 pages in six days. Um, does your client want to do it? And, I mean, people, I had to turn down people that, that wanted to do that film. We shot 94 pages in six days. They worked for, like, $100 a day. It was, like, insane. It was one of the hardest things I've ever done, and I will never do it again. 17 pages of straight dialogue a day in 10 hours. It was it was mind-blowing. And, I mean, the film works. I don't think it's a directing feat as far as, like, there's nothing stylish about it. and. But the, the the acting is super good, and I'm I'm very proud of the writing. And you know, it's it's a, it's a different kind of film, and we shot it shot it for twenty four thousand dollars, which is nothing. And it was just an exercise, and you know, Paranormal Activity was supposedly made for eleven thousand dollars, which I don't believe. But um, I was just thinking, like, okay, I'm gonna try to make a movie for ten thousand dollars, but it was twenty four thousand. I went over budget. And we got distribution through Gravitas, which is a really great company that aggregates um, digitally. And um, now I'm trying to get the next movie made. So that's my story in a nutshell. I'm in your power. I'm in your power. You are in my power. I can make you shoot anything I want you to do. That's powerful. No. No, it's too loose. No. You can't escape me. Okay, that's okay. No, you can't escape me. No. I'm in your power. I'm in your power. I can't do anything. I'm not going to make love to you. I can do anything. I'm your power. You can do anything you want to me. Don't touch my nipples. Yes, I will. Yes, I will touch your nipples. No, don't. Don't. You don't want to. You're monstrous. You're monstrous. Don't do that. Don't touch my You don't want me to? Well, I will. I will touch your balls. I'll touch your balls. Whenever I no, want to, because no, you want to know why? No, you are no, in no, my no, power. I won't. And I now won't, you're going to make me I come. No, 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 I yes, can't. I won't. I won't. I won't. I won't. Oh. No, no. Oh. 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 No. Oh. 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 All right, we are back. Thanks to Lizzie Borden and Amanda Goodwin for taking the time to talk to us about Working Girls. So we are back, and we are talking about Lizzie Borden's film. And to that end, we are talking about prostitution. And we are joined this week by a real working girl, Grace Smith. So, Grace, I wanted to ask you, you said that you've never been in a brothel whatsoever. So how do you think that the film kind of compares to real life? Like, how... Is it as far as because you don't have that whole like madam relationship and all that kind of fun stuff? Did you see many parallels between what you do and what it was going on in the film? There was a few parallels, definitely. Like the interaction between Molly and her clients, I, I could definitely uh, relate to that. But yeah, I was I, I've watched um, some episodes like on HBO about brothels and things of that sort. So I have a basic understanding. I've spoken to many women that have worked in the brothels in Vegas um, as something that I have no desire to do so and wouldn't recommend anyone to do. And from what I understand, they're almost more like 
it almost sounds like more like an indentured servitude kind of thing. Like you can't leave once you get there. I mean, that's that's my understanding. I don't know if you heard the same thing. You're absolutely correct there. Um, you're basically um, imprisoned in the brothel. I mean, you can leave, but you're show, you, you have an escort um, when you leave. You're not allowed to leave by yourself unless you're leaving to go home or whatever. You're done working the brothel. But it's scheduled, you know, day passes out, you know, to go to the doctors or whatnot. All supplies have to be purchased at the brothel through their supplier. You know, you're basically on call 24-7, um, and it's, it's not a very... In my eyes, it's not a healthy environment to be working under. If you don't mind, how did you get into the business? By choice. I was a single parent, and uh, I come from the corporate background, and I was tired of working, you know, 60s to 70 hours a week and, you know, barely making ends meet. So I'd been single for many years, and I figured I was killing two birds with one stone, uh, working less and making more money. How has it been for you in terms of your experience? For the most part, it's been wonderful. I've been in the industry now for ten, almost 10 years. It'll be 10 years this November. I can count on just a few fingers, bad experiences that I've encountered. And I definitely learned from those for the most part. Um, it's been it's been wonderful. I love my job. We've talked a lot in this episode so far as far as this whole, you know, expecting the violence because we have the sex or because we have women who are on their own kind of thing. It's almost like, you know, the sorority girls in the slasher film were always waiting for the guy to start picking them off kind of thing. When it comes to you, have you experienced violence when it comes to your profession? There was one incident, yes, um, where the gentleman um, started getting physical with me. Um, I don't – I have both book and street smarts, so I was able to um, – uh, put a stop to the situation quite quickly, and he left um, without me uh, receiving any injuries. Had I known and dug a little deeper, the gentleman was notorious for doing what he tried to do with me, and that was a mistake that I, you know, that I learned from. That I, I didn't dig a little bit deeper into who I was spending some time with. For you, what is the best thing about what you do, and what is like the worst thing or the most challenging thing about it? The best thing is um, working for myself, being able to make my own hours to an extent. I love to travel, so I'm able to travel all over the world, um, and it's so wonderful. I mean, I've got wonderful keepsakes and experiences that I've shared with others. Well, the drawback is the inconsistency. Um, That's something that I had a very hard time transitioning from coming from the corporate world Having, you know, knowing what my paycheck was going to be every week to thrown into this, not knowing, you know, from week to week how much money I'll be making and things of that sort. So the the inconsistency is probably the major drawback to it. You talked about the one by a client that you had and that had you dug a little deeper, you would have found out more about him. Is there like a networking kind of thing? Because I know in Working Girls, we see the the women actually talking amongst themselves about these clients. How do you kind of figure out what these people are like that are coming to use your services? Definitely there's a network for the most part amongst the women um, that are in the industry. We have what's called references. A gentleman will provide names and contact information of other women that he's seen and we're able to contact those ladies and, you know, 
they don't go into details of how their um, session went, but they'll, you know, usually say, yeah, you know, no problems, they'd see them again. Or if there was issues that arise, for the most part, women are forthcoming with that information. When you were starting out, how did you learn the various things that you needed to know? I mean, is there a book? Were there sites? Were there people you talked to? How do you go about finding the information? Actually, I had applied with an agency. I was going to go that route first. It was an advertisement at the back of one of the local rags, weekly newspapers in the Detroit area. I responded to an ad. I met with the lady. And when I started asking questions, I was just like, oh, there's no way, you know. Um, you know, I was asking how much percentage she was going to take. What is she doing to make sure that my, you know, that I'm going to be safe and not in harm's way and things of that sort. And it didn't sound like a good fit for me. And so on their website, there was a link to a website. And so I registered and I read, I don't know, probably for a month and a half, I just read everything that I could. And then I created another account and and that's how I got started. Um, and then I made my website and um, and that's all she wrote. As far as you know, are there brothels in Detroit or is that kind of more of a big city thing? Um, I'm not of a, aware of any brothels in Detroit. I know that there's like private parties or things of that sort, but not any brothels, so to speak. I know of the ones in Las Vegas. There was a few in New York. I don't know if there still are. Speaking to other women that have been in the industry a lot longer than I have, 15, 20 years ago, there was brothels in every major city, and that's the girls would work a circuit and they would go to each city and work, you know, a few days and then they go on to the next one. Um, and I don't know if those are still in existence or not. Um, not that I'm aware of, though. How do you think the Internet has changed the business? Has it moved from, you know, ads in the back of the paper or, or being on the street in certain places to something completely different? Well, I started on the Internet, um, so to speak, and I think it's allowed – the Internet has allowed women to treat this as a business. I mean, there's a lot of business-savvy women in this industry. If I had to work the streets, I don't think I would have. I would have just, you know, stuck to my 9 to 6 or 9 to 7. Yeah, I, I would have never worked the streets. Maybe like the telephone book or the newspapers, but I would have never been a streetwalker, so to speak. And there's nothing wrong with streetwalking. Um, it's just, it's not for me. And I think the Internet has also helped almost like the sisterhood amongst the women that choose to be sex workers. I mean, like I said, we have a reference system. Yeah, there's like a sisterhood amongst the women. And I think the Internet has a lot to do with it because we're able to communicate easier with one another instead of, you know, yeah, being out on the streets or working for an agency or a pimp or things of that sort. Some of the thing that I like about Working Girls, the movie, is this whole idea of the ritual, and Molly kind of schools the new girl on it a little bit as far as telling the guy to make himself completely comfortable, and when you get the money, and just all of those like steps that are in place. Now, do you have certain things that you do as well, or is that pretty much, do you think that's just kind of the world of the movie kind of thing? I mean, I have my own little rituals that, that I do before a session. I meditate just so that, you know, I have a clear mind and I'm not bringing in my own baggage into a session. But other than that, I mean, that's my only ritual that I have is um, a meditation and light a few candles. But I've, you know, I've heard of other women, you know, having their 
rituals, so to speak, of, you know, what they like to do before a session and things of that sort. I, there's not, per se, a rule book. Um, you know, it's always advised, you know, to collect your money up front. Do I do that? No. Have I been ripped off? No. I've been shorted, but, you know, uh, it's part of the business, I guess, so to speak. But, I mean, there are handbooks out there. I mean, there's t- uh, there's a ton of um, e-books available in regard to guide to escorting. Or Amanda Brooks has written, I-, I think she's on her fourth volume or maybe fifth volume. I'm not really sure. But she's published some guides on how to be an escort. And there's some other ones out there on Amazon as well. So how does it kind of work as far as, like, do you get an email or get a call and then, you know, you agree upon is, is the price out there or do you negotiate it? And, and just what is, what are the steps? If Again, if you feel comfortable talking about that. I've created a website um, and on my website, I go into great detail about who I am and what you could expect from me. And there are also how to contact me. My prices are on my website. I don't discuss price ever. Um, it's just kind of a, I guess, a taboo for me. So everything's on my website. My website's pretty, um, it's got a lot of information on it. I made sure that I covered all my bases. Do you find that people that come to you, it becomes uh, that that you do have regulars or is it just sort of one time and then they're gone or is it a combination? I would say that 90% of my clientele are regulars, people that I've known for a very long time. There are a few that you know, as a one-time, you know, a notch in their belt, so to speak. Those people I tend not to attract, thankfully, because that's not what I'm seeking as well. I like establishing a rapport with the gentleman that I spend time with. You said that you like to travel and that you're kind of touring around right now. Is touring required or is it something that a lot of people do? It seems like I've heard the term uh, often when I'm looking up stuff. I don't know if touring is required. For me, I just like to travel. Um, I get invited to travel with clients quite often. And the inner gypsy inside of me doesn't really allow me to sit still for very long. I get a little antsy. So I don't know if it's required. It's always suggested, you know, if a a woman says, you know, well, business is really slow, one of the few suggestions that's given is, you know, well, go tour somewhere, you know, go to a different city. But if you're in New York or Chicago or L.A., um, I mean, those are one of the three largest cities in the United States. I, I, I don't think there would be a need to tour. I could be wrong, though. I don't live in either of those cities. So, Are there attitudes in Michigan that are different in other cities or states that you visit as far as about escorting, about prostitution? No, I, I'm not very open with people outside of the industry about what I do because people still frown upon it. So, yeah, they pass judgment. That was one of the things I was going to ask. What do you think is the biggest misconception about what you do and who you are to do what you do? That we're all strung out, addicted on drugs, all have pimps. Now, granted, there are women in in the industry that, you know, do abuse drugs and they do have pimps and they are forced in this industry, but I think that percentage is small. And that's one thing I was disappointed with, uh, the documentary, uh, American Cortesian. Most of those women, you know, they had similar stories, how they got into the industry. They were forced, you know, they were addicted to drugs and things of that sort. I chose to become 
a sex worker. It wasn't out of necessity. I had a a job, a nine-to-five job. It was just, just made things easier for me. Yeah, that documentary was pretty tough to watch because it was, it felt like the same story just being told by different voices a lot of times. Just that whole abuse at home or my parents didn't know what to do with me. And then, yeah, it almost always was abusive, boyfriend, husband, whatever. And it just felt like it felt like they were beating me over the head with it a little bit. I'm sure that the um, she had a difficult time finding women that were comfortable. Sh- first of all, showing their faces, you know, putting their face out there for the world to see that hey, I'm a sex worker. That had different stories or different backgrounds. So I'm sure that was one of the challenges that she had, and that maybe that's probably why all the stories sound the same. Between the four women. Have you ever seen anything that comes close to an accurate portrayal of your profession, either in documentaries or in narrative film? I can't say they have, but I don't watch a lot of films, so... Mm-hmm. Have either of you seen the HBO series Hookers at the Point? Nope. Nope. Oh, I've my seen God. Cat House. <laughs> I've seen Cat House. Liked Cat House, um, even though that seemed to kind of devolve into reality show territory really quickly. But Hooker's at the Point, if you guys get a chance, it's out on YouTube. It is, it's sad, but it's also hilarious. There is this voiceover narrator guy who does this, like, freeform poetry I can't really say it's freeform because it almost always rhymes and it is just we're back to check out how these women survive at the point. Some have vanished, some were lost in action, some were still doing blowjobs and lays, fighting life's time clock, hoping to escape the brutal life on the streets of Hunts Point. It was so bad that they actually parodied it on South Park, and I was so happy when they did. There was one episode where Jimmy, um, the the little crippled kid, and I mean that in very much the way that South Park does. Jimmy? Uh, no, Jimmy, the stand-up comedian. Oh, okay. Yeah, he, he keeps um, getting inappropriate erections when he was in class so he doesn't want to stand up and go to the board and they're having this talent show and he doesn't want to go into the talent show because he's afraid he's going to get a boner in the middle of the show so he eventually finds out that in order to not get a boner he needs to go have sex with a woman so roundabout 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 he ends up at the bad part of south park and runs into this um, woman called nut gobbler or something like that and when they introduce the scene, they parody the hookers on the uh, hookers at the point just briefly, but it had me in stitches because it is just this most overwrought narration that you could ever hope to hear. It, it is fantastic. Colfax Point, pimps and hoes and tricks in rows. Women walk the streets with corns on their feet. Broken dreams and no ice creams. You looking for a date? Mike, back to your original question, if I have seen anything that is similar to what it is. I take that back. There used to be an episode on Showtime or a series, Diary of a Call Girl 
Um, oh, what's the actress name that's Doctor Who? Yeah, was her name Belle, Belle de Jour yes. out of London? Yeah, um, that was, there was some similarities there. Um, I was like, oh, that was a great showcase of the industry, the good and the bad. Yes, that series was a great series. Yes, sorry, it, it came to mind as we were talking. Yeah, seeing um, Rose Tyler, uh, Billy Piper was the actress's name, seeing her in uh, lingerie quite often did not hurt either. Grace, when it comes to your appointments, are there requests that come up more often than others? Is it like one of these, like, men are missing this in their lives, so they're going to go to you just to get it? I don't see a common request. I see that they're just looking for companionship, um, someone to, first of all, be themselves with, um, no expectations, you know, no judgment, and someone to listen uh, to them and hear their stories. And that's what I find. And when it comes to, you know, we've got, I've said so many things tonight, like escorts, prostitutes, I don't think I've used the term call girls. Is Do you have a preferred term or are there like, again, kind of that strata that we're talking about with, you know, you had met, uh, Robin mentioned streetwalkers. I mean, there's all these different terms for prostitution. Each one seems like it has a little different connotation. Is that kind of how you read things as well? It recently came out to someone and I said, you know, I'm a sex worker. And then I was like, no, no, wait, let me stop and take that back because I'm much more than just a sex worker. You know, I'm also a paid companion. I'm an, you know, an escort for hire. There's a lot of different hats or roles, so to speak. They're all entwined, though. Even though each one means something differently, they all have a connection in, in some form, shape or form. As for yourself, when, you know, obviously you're in it, it is part of your day-to-day, and I'm sure maybe you think about it is, why do you think that there are these taboos within the culture that still are hung up on on sex work and not treating it as, as I said at the beginning, sex work is work, is just legitimate work, and making it safe and, and easy uh, for people to be in that business without worrying about being exploited or, or harmed in some way? I'm not really sure because when I first got into the industry, I started doing a little research and to come to find out, I mean, the brothels is what paid for most of the rail, you know, the railroads back in the 1800s to be built um, were the brothels. And they were, if I'm not mistaken, prostitution was legal back then. And then somehow it got a bad rap and was illegal. I'm not really sure why these um, taboos are there. Maybe religion has a little bit to play into it. I'm not really sure. It baffles me, though. But it's great to see that Canada coming around and um, decriminalizing it. You know, at the same time, I, I look at it and I wonder if things have changed for you over those 10 years. Have you found that there's still such an issue of, of law enforcement always being over it and, you know, concern of that? Or do you think things have uh, loosened a bit? And do you believe that maybe we will see a time, much like uh, we're seeing right now with legalized pot in certain states, that maybe, uh, as you were saying with Canada, this could become, you know, if not legalized, quote unquote, but at least decriminalized, and they're not going to bust you and, and have right. to deal with that. Um, I know that the FBI does, uh, I think there's three major sweeps in a year. Throughout the United States, there's three major ones. Um, 
one time it's around the Super Bowl. I think then another times in June. If you go through um, their reports, you'll see a pattern. And I'm all for prosecuting and going after those that are victimizing and preying on underage girls and boys. It's not just girls. It is underage girls and boys and the human trafficking. But it's not just in sex work. There's human trafficking in, in all types, different types of um, forms of work. So I would like to see it decriminalized or legalized like we're seeing the movement with marijuana. I don't know if it'll come and our lifetime, um, maybe thereafter. I guess it'll just play, we'll have to see how it goes with Canada. But like I said, I'm all for going after those that are trafficking or are preying on underage children. But when you look at the reports, the amount of children that they're rescuing when they do these nationwide sweeps is just, the numbers aren't there to support the funding that they're, you know, throwing the money at too. And, you know, women that, such as myself, are, you know, getting caught up in their sweeps. Grace, are you a hooker with a heart of gold? Yes. <laughs> yeah, I have a heart of gold, that's for sure. I'll give you the shirt off my back if you need it. She at least is kind enough to sit here and talk to us for well right. over an hour and a half, <laughs> Mr. Mike. So, and, and we haven't even, you know, we haven't even discussed any sort of, you know, uh, exchange for this. This is just out of the goodness of her time and the goodness of her heart to uh, to share these stories and to and to come on the show. So there you go. I think you have your answer. I was just curious because I'm I'm so used to that uh, stereotype in films. So I wasn't sure if if that was actually real or not. It totally is. I'm not motivated by money by any means. I don't look at my clients as walking wallets. The thought of it just makes me sick, sick to my stomach. So, you know, you're talking about other films with with prostitution in them and and um Grace had mentioned someone who was called Belle de Jour. So, uh, of course I have to bring up Bunuel's Belle de Jour. But uh, I wouldn't say that's a very realistic portrayal of prostitution, but when you talk about a documentary that I saw recently that was quite interesting, it was called Meet the Falcons, F O K K E N S, and it's about these twin sisters who are now senior citizens who have been sex workers in Amsterdam for decades. And what's interesting is it's not just about doing the job then, but also kind of looking at old age and, you know, kind of, uh, do you age out and what do you do when you get to that point of this is what you've done and, you know, that's your, you know, with these ladies, I think they were doing like 40, 50 years. So, um, how do you transition into, uh, into being a senior citizen? Well, I'm not there yet as senior citizen. I've got some quite a few years <laughs> before I'm there. Um, but it's interesting that you bring that up, Rob. It's something that I've been reflecting on in the last few months. You know, Like I said, I'm approaching 10 years into this industry, um, and that's something that I've been asking myself for the last few months. Um, do I have an expiration date in this industry? And if so, when is it? What, what am I going to do? Am I going to go back you know, into the corporate world or will I continue to have a hand somehow into sex work not you know not really knowing how so i'm not i'm unsure of that the twins that you mentioned in amsterdam those ladies fascinate me weren't they close to their 80s before they retired one of them retired and the other was still working from what i remember in the documentary it's been a few months ago since i've seen it and they were kind of like, well, you know, what are we going to do? It's like, I need to do this because I need to pay the bills. It's like, you know, if I could 
solidly retire, I would. So it's it's kind of you know there there's one part of it where one seems stuck, still feeling like she has to do it, and the other one's trying to get the other one to go along with you know come on retire it's you know you're getting too old for this right right yeah i don't know if there is such an age you know an expiration on an age um because what's the saying there's there's a seat for every ass is that what the saying is if not it should be that that's a good one i like that (laughs) um for me i've been single i've never been married but the thought is pondering on me and I question whether I can have a healthy relationship and still be in this industry. And that's something that I'm struggling with personally. And I think that's bringing up the other questions that I have myself, you know, when or if I'm going to retire and things of that sort. So, Didn't Henry Winkler have a whole retirement plan for the ladies that worked for him in night shift? How would you ladies like to earn 10 times the amount of money you earn now? I'm not kidding. Ten times the amount of money that you earn right now. You want to use the blackboard? You know, you're absolutely right. We're not pimps. But if I understand it correctly, pimps make 70, 80, 90 percent of your money, right? You work very hard for that money, don't you? Yeah. Then please think of William and myself as uh, business managers, okay? As as agents, if you will. We're only interested in 10% of your money. 10%? Leave him alone. He's doing fine. And ladies, I have a knack. I can take money and I can make it into more money. Oh, boy! Why shouldn't you have the fruits of your labor? Why should you be cheated and beaten? That's right. Do you have a dental plan? No. Do you have a health plan? Well, if you come with us, we'd like to give you a sound foundation, a financial foundation. And and, and if you don't come with us, well, then I, I totally understand it. And I say thank you very much for listening. Oh, you sound like my accountant. <laughs> that was one question I wanted to ask you, Grace, was, you know, we I talked a little bit about the touring thing and, and all that. Was that necessary for people when we bottomed out with our economy? How did like the whole recession and everything affect business, especially here in Michigan, but elsewhere as well? At first, I didn't see a difference. You know, when the real estate market, when the bubble first popped, I didn't really see any difference in business. But when things really slowed down in Detroit and, you know, the big three, you know, well, two of the big three were looking for, you know, government help and things of that sort, that's when I really started to travel outside of Michigan because, you know, manufacturing jobs were going overseas and whatnot and things of that sort. So it's strange, though, because when I travel, I base how our economy is doing on the amount of semis that are on the road. So if there's a lot of semis on the road, people are shipping and buying and things of that sort, and our economy is good. It's been interesting over the last few years to see the economy bounce back in certain areas where it's still struggling in Michigan. And it's, yeah, it's, it's pretty interesting seeing that. Uh, well, you brought up night shift, so that's more of a, I guess, a humorous take on, Damn right, it's humorous. But, uh, I, <laughs> freaking hilarious. I just love that. I just remember that bit was Eddie Murphy and he had um, Ron Howard on 
uh, this is Saturday Night Live, and he was doing a film bit. And he goes, what's your new film about? And he goes, oh, it's about these two pimps. He goes, oh, it's a movie about two pimps, and there's not any brothers in it? I don't know whether to, just, I don't know whether to shake your hand or smack you upside your head. But speaking of pimps, American Pimp, that's another documentary which uh, is kind of deplorable to watch at times. But you can see sort of the influence of somebody like an Iceberg Slim on, you know, if you're into hip-hop with someone like Ice-T. But um, I was thinking of other films that I had seen that are related to sex work or prostitution in some way that I thought were quite good. And I know this one gets kind of mixed reviews online, but uh, Center of the World, which is Wayne Wang's uh, 2001 film of Peter Skarsgård and Molly Parker. And I thought that was kind of an interesting little film, a uh, low-budget independent thing shot in Vegas. And um, like I said, I stand by Belle de Jour as well. So um, that's another one that I like. I have to ask you, does Peter Sarsgaard play a scumbag in that movie? No, actually, he doesn't play a scumbag Whoa. in this movie. I, I know that you're like, Peter Sarsgaard always has to play a scumbag. He is a um, sort of a geeky software designer, and he hires Molly Parker to like hang out with him for a weekend or something. It's kind of, I guess, maybe in the vein of also, I guess, maybe leaving Las Vegas. Uh, which you could also throw in there as sort of a, a similar because you're looking at Las Vegas, you're looking at someone who's with someone, although you get in Leaving Las Vegas the idea that maybe the Elizabeth Shue character uh, actually kind of cares for and in the end kind of falls in love with um, Nicolas Cage's uh, suicidal drunk. I'm so glad you went to Leaving Las Vegas rather than Pretty Woman. Pretty Woman is probably one of the most morally offensive films in my book next to uh, Forrest Gump. We're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. I quit med school today. That shouldn't come as a surprise to you. Changing specialties, Dr. Grant. Have you ever heard of body modification? I feel like Dr. Mengele heute happened. What's that? Dreams, yeah? Yeah. That's right. We're back next week with a look at the Soska sisters' American Mary. We will feature an interview with the Twisted Twins themselves, I guess, and American Mary star Tristan Risk. So make sure to join us as Iris from the Badasses, Boobs, and Body Counts joins us to talk about this modern horror film. But before we go, I want to thank this week's special guests, Lizzie Borden and Amanda Goodwin, for stopping by, as well as our special guest co-host, Grace Smith. Now, Grace, uh, where can people find out more about you and what you do? Um, my website, amazing-grace.biz. Wow, that was a short answer. <laughs> <laughs> what what kind of stuff can they expect to find at amazinggrace.biz? Um, like I said earlier, uh, I give a, a great uh, description of myself, what you can expect from me. Um, my photos are on there as well. What I expect from the client. Uh, my rates are there. Uh, I started a blog about a year ago. Um much yeah it's growing mm -hmm. i'm not very comfortable with it but yeah i'm working at it 
Well, thanks again, Grace, for coming on, and thanks to everybody for listening. We've gotten a lot of great feedback about our recent Roman and Shakespeare months, and we're always happy to get a good response, or any response for that matter, from folks. Feel free to head on over to iTunes and give us a review. We're going to be doing another special Ego Fest show coming up here, so if you have any questions or comments or criticisms about the show... Feel free to drop us a note, send us a line, shoot us an email, give us a voicemail, send us an MP3. Our number here is 734-666-0800, and that is over at our website as well, projection-booth.com. And, uh, you know, it would be great to hear from you, and we'll be doing that show, I think, what, early October, Rob? No, that's the cutoff is early October, October 10th, I, th- I believe. Correct. So, yeah, it would be great to hear from you. There's nothing more that Rob and I like better than to talk about ourselves. Well, maybe not.
talking about here huh what's the essence of what we're talking about i'll spell it out for you if i have to prostitution hmm? what, is kidding, what, is what is this prostitution hey we can say it we're big kids now right you know, a lot of times it'll help you to understand a word if you break it down. So let's do that now, shall we? Pros doesn't mean anything. Forget about that. Tit, I think we all know what that means. Two, okay, two, tit. And shun, of course, from the um, Latin to shun. To say no, uh-uh, thank you anyway, I don't want it. To push away, doesn't even belong in this word, really. So let's get rid of that. You know, um, if I can take a moment here, uh, and I mean this, what I'm about to say, I feel a lot of love in this room. I don't know, maybe it's me, but I'll tell you something, I was here a minute ago, and uh, it was really beautiful. <laughs> 